Hey everybody, welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Got a big, big episode for you today. The Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin 2012 year-end Jeff-tacular is finally here. It is amongst us. You are experiencing it now. Let me tell you how this is going to work. I got in touch with almost everybody who was on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show over the course of 2012, and I spent five minutes with each of them discussing what their favorite thing of 2012 is, and uh, here are the results. But before we get started, let me say that this whole thing, this whole thing, was made possible by Audible.com. This whole episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of uh, spoken word entertainment and information online. I know, I thought it was me, I looked into it, it's actually Audible. Uh, If you listen to podcasts, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance there's something on Audible that you will enjoy, and you can find out for free. You get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial if you just go to audible.com slash Jeff Rubin, that is slash J-E-F-F-R-U-B-I-N, if you're confused about the spelling, check the name of the show you're listening to and uh, approximately cut it in half. Just one, Jeff Rubin, audible.com slash Jeff Rubin. Thank you to Audible, an absolutely wonderful site that I am pleased to have sponsor the show. Okay, let's get down to the Jeff-tacular. First up, one of the first guests ever for the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tours. Scott uh, runs his own pizza tour company. We talked about it at length last year. I believe it was episode three This year, in 2012, Scott returned in episode 37 to discuss attending PizzaCon, the National Pizza Convention, and what went down there. And now he is here once again. Scott, what was the best thing of 2012? Oh, my God. It has been a doozy of a year, but um, I think it's got to be fried pizza. Now, I've eaten fried pizza with you in the past before 2012. I specifically remember you going to, uh, we, we went to Chip Shop which isn't there anymore on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> yeah. So I've eaten fried pizza before. What is new in fried pizza this year? See, what we had at Chip Shop was a battered and fried Scottish-style pizza, which means that they bought pizza from the place across the street. They dipped it in batter. They fried it. They charged us three bucks for a slice. Fine. No big deal. i never have to do that again. What I'm talking about happening like this, like 2012 fried pizza, is um, sort of this real new trend where they're taking the dough and instead of topping it and baking it in an oven like normal pizza, they're frying that dough in oil, then removing it from the oil after 30 seconds, topping it, and then sticking it in the oven for a little 30-second bake. So the dough is fried, but the ingredients are not. Exactly, exactly. The dough is the only part that's fried. It's sort of, it's sort of like making a quick little donut, and then putting pizza on top of it. And what does that do to the pizza? Well, you get this fluffier texture on the crust. Instead of it being compressed, it's got more air in the base. Because when you ba- when you top a pizza and then bake it in an oven, those toppings are holding down the dough, and they're not able to fluff up. When you bake, well, what, rather, when you cook the dough before you top it, then you're getting a fluffy base. You know like when you get a Sicilian pizza, it's it's pretty fluffy and bready? That's all because they've baked that base first, then topped it, and then rebake it a second time. It's similar with this fried thing, although 
a huge difference is uh, you're frying it. You know, it's like covered in little bits of crispy, delicious, sweet, nutty oil on the outside. Yeah, fried generally just means good. Correct. While I have you here, uh, and I'll have a few more chances to plug this throughout the course of the episode, let's talk about the live Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show that is going down. Is it January 11th? I should know this. 15th? Let's look it up. Hold on. 15th? No, 12th. 12th. January 12th. Live Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. You did not mishear me. I said live Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. It's going to be at the pit. It's going to be at 630. And Scott, you are going to be there to perform Dinosaurs, your song that is the theme song to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. You are correct. I will be there. How excited are you about that? Extremely excited. This is a big deal. I, I am assembling a band for the sole purpose of playing one 45-second song for your live show, and I couldn't be more excited. I couldn't be more excited either. I booked this thing months ago, and I didn't know anything about it until recently. All, But I said, uh, if I can get Scott to do the theme song, I will do it. You committed months ago. I'm extremely excited about it, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Scott, thanks so much for talking tonight. Thank you for having me on Skype. Moving on, our next guest joins us in episode 47 to discuss Game of Thrones season 2. After joining us for episode 3 last year to discuss Game of Thrones season 1, he was also here for episode 37, where we talked about Angry Birds Space. Please welcome back John Gabris. John, what is the best thing of 2012? Uh, see, here, I was so torn when you told me uh, what's the best thing of 2012. I was going to pick Expendables 2, uh, but I feel like since you and Castles already discussed it at length, um, I'll pick a new subject, which is the final season of Fringe. Oh, shit, dude. I'm kind of on season three of Fringe. Can we talk about this abstractly? <laughs> Um, sure, yeah. I honestly don't think anything could be spoiled for you because it's like, it's a huge time jump uh, for the final season. Oh, really? That's interesting. I didn't know that was coming. So yeah. that, I, it took me a while to get into that show because that first season is rough, but the third season's actually been great. Yeah, after they think that they're going to like be canceled, it gets better. <laughs> it's like, alright, let's just do something crazy. What uh, What's happening in season three where you're at right now so I can kind of place it? Uh, I'm almost done. There is uh, the, they're like dealing with the doomsday machine and, like, Peter's got to choose between the Olivias. Oh, yeah, so awesome. I mean, if Anatorv isn't hot, evil Anatorv is even hotter, dude. <laughs> I just saw the one where she, uh, where she impersonates Leonard Nimoy for an episode. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's different. There's great stuff all throughout the season. So in the final season, it takes place in the future. Uh, without going t- too much into details, I guess if anyone is a huge fan of Fringe, just fast forward four minutes to whoever's next, you know, so you can hear Owen talk about whatever Nintendo GameCube game he's playing. <laughs> Owen's favorite thing of 2012 is still GameCube. <laughs> so the ca- uh, the main cast is trapped in amber, um, and, like, they come out, so they haven't aged at all, but they are 20 or so years in the future, and what's happened to New York slash Boston is... You know, it's pretty awesome. I don't want to. I won't spoil too much for you, but it's really this last season itself. My friend Justin Tyler said it. It's like a really long, good sci-fi movie. Justin loves like, Fringe. I know Justin loves Fringe. Yeah, he's a huge Fringe fan. He got me. He got me hooked into it early on, and now I'm finally catching up. I, I, I'm all caught up on the final season. So. So good. Everyone on that is like a decent actor, and they're doing ridiculous things all the time. Yeah, the- and I, I mean, like they take it so seriously, and they're big, like John Noble, uh, the you know uh, Peter Bishop, not Peter Bishop, uh, Walter Bishop, Doctor Bishop. Yeah, yeah Walter Bishop um, is 
so he's such a good actor, and he only says like borderline retarded things the entire season. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, uh, the one of the reasons I came back and decided to revisit that show was knowing that it was going to have a finale. I like knowing that there's like an end point and that they reach it and that they make a series finale. That kind of made me reinterested in checking out, and now I'm really excited to uh, work my way through it. Yeah, I I am a huge I am a hundred percent on board with you. The second I, there is an ending to a show, that's why I enjoy watching shows so much on DVD after or on Netflix after they've aired. Is because I know that there's an ending, so I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna I can watch it with like you know with uh, finality in mind. Like oh, this is gonna be the entire story is gonna be wrapped up. You know, getting to watch the HBO shows and stuff like that, rather than being like I'm gonna sit down and deal with however many episodes of this there are. Yeah, and then you know it's an open ended question. Like just I don't know how many more years of well we know Breaking Bad. Like how many more years of Homeland is this? What am I really? What kind of commitment am I really making here? Yeah, I know. And you know what? That was my biggest problem with the first season of Homeland. I almost picked season two of Homeland as my 2012 because it's really awesome right now. It's, it's been good. You know, another show that got better after it was canceled, and you see it here and there, but Dollhouse, I think, is the best example of this, where once they found out that show was being canceled, I guess they just had like five years worth of ideas thinking that this was going to be a show that was on forever. And then after they found out they were canceled, they were like, all right, we'll just put that on the last three episodes. So like <laughs> yeah. the homer, that sh- the last few episodes of that show you see all the stuff they had planned for the next few years and it, it really picks up that's you see that's awesome I, i'm gonna go watch dollhouse not right now but i do want to eventually watch that i feel like even to a degree it happened with lost when everyone oh, when, like the, yeah the consensus on lost was like this is really starting to suck how are they going to end it they were like you know what fuck you guys and we went out and like just jam-packed the season for, like the final season with all kinds of crazy shit yeah we actually talked about uh in one episode of the show that you won't have heard yet when we're listening, but other people listening will have. There's like a weird lost time paradox with when I record these and release these. But we talked in a recent episode about how Lost, uh, really the moment where it became good again was when they announced that end date, when they were like, all right, here's how much more we are doing, and the producers didn't have to like spin their wheels. They knew exactly how much story they had left to parcel out over how many episodes. Exactly. By the way, the whole time you were talking, I was just nodding my head enormously. <laughs> and I was like, yup, yup. And I'm like, all right, this is a podcast. Speak up, Gabriel. <laughs> I was literally going, uh, like, uh-huh, yup, exactly. <laughs> nah, it's all right. I'm talking about time paradoxes and stuff. Maybe that means it's time to move on. Um, yeah, that's usually the end of uh, every conversation you and I have. You start getting into your time paradox shit, and I'm like, all right, dude, you're too high. I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> Hi, John. Well, thanks for weighing in. I miss you, buddy. Hopefully I'll see you when I come back to New York. Up next is David Peterson, who you may remember as the man who created the Dothraki language from Game of Thrones. He joined us on episode 47 to translate uh, some random phrases into Dothraki for myself and Gabrus. Now he's here to tell us what the best thing of 2012 is. What was it, David? Okay, so my best new show of 2012 I am giving to Legend of Korra, the next incarnation of the last uh, Airbender series. All right, so break this down for me, because I have not been a huge Avatar The Last Airbender fan. I just, I've just i tried it, I've seen it, I know it's good, I, I'm not totally familiar with the series. So what exactly is Legend of Korra? Okay, well, first of all, we can never be friends now that I know this about you, so let's just uh, keep that on the back burner. But second, so... Uh, the, the Last Airbender was basically took, takes place in this fictional world uh, several hundred, or let's say a hundred years ago, and we follow around this guy who's kind of like the, uh, who's kind of like the Dalai Lama, except he has super magical powers. 
uh, and could control the elements. With you so far. This series takes place 100 years later and is the next incarnation of this powerful being. Who And the whole thing takes place in a kind of like 1920s, 1910s style uh, Hong Kong, where uh, you have the new avatar, Korra, who has all of these powers and a lot of energy and rage, but can't really control them very well, and is going up against these kind of uh, almost like a, a fake... Uh, proletariat uh, uh, movement uh, to basically wipe out people like her. That is interesting. You know, a recurring theme uh, at the end of the year on this podcast has been this idea of TV shows that have endings and are complete things. And I'm intrigued that Avatar, The Last Airbender, told a whole story, completed it, and now to follow up on it, they're not, like, spinning it off or, you know, twisting the plot to somehow force a sequel out of it. They're just doing a time jump. That's a, is it like Avatar? Is it a direct sequel? Like, how, how much of a sequel is it? It's more like a spiritual sequel in that it's the same type of character, but in a basically a futuristic universe. There are actually some characters that are still alive that are now, like, in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, in this version of the show. And I think one of the things I liked about uh, The Last Airbender, which is the same for this one, is that they basically had a plan to say, all right, the show is going to run for this many seasons, and you know, this is the story arc. And after that, it's done. And they're doing the same thing with this new version of the show. Um, and you know, who knows if, that, uh, if you know, after this it'll take place in the fictional year 2000 and then 2100. So conceivably, it's one of those things that could keep going forever, but the way they're doing it is each one is basically like a mini-series, except that this is kind of for a kid's show, which is something you don't really see uh, at all. But who loves watching TV all the time more than kids? It's perfect. <laughs> kids and me, because I have nothing to do when I'm sitting here creating languages. I need to watch something. I also think that they often underestimate kids and that kids would love a show with, you know, a continuity, just like adults like a serialized show that you can pay attention to where the characters change and grow. I think kids would like the same thing. I I agree, and I think it's working so far. And uh, I, I say more power to them. Throw money at these guys. I want to see The Last Airbender uh, just continue forever. Is Korra about as good as Avatar? Is it possibly even better? Okay, there are certain things that I think that are better. For example, I think you will not find better action on television. And I'm serious about this. If you haven't watched a lot of it, watch this. It has better action than you'll probably see on a lot of shows. There are a little, uh, because uh, the Avatar is a girl, there are a couple of little uh, uncomfortable bits as she is trying to... Uh, yeah, hook up with some guy, and, and none of us who are fans of the show, and, and I'm serious about this, none of us want to see Cora and Mako get together. Uh, that's just train wreck. But um, anyway, uh, aside from that, it's like, uh, it really is like, you know, each episode is a little miniature um, action film um, with a lot of humor and heart thrown in. What is it that separates uh, Cora and Avatar, this whole last Airbender franchise, from other cartoons? Uh, well, I think, uh, first of all, there's the quality of animation, which is higher than you would expect for a show aimed at this age group. It's something, it, really, this is the type of quality you expect from Japanese anime, uh, which is typically aimed at adults. Even their shonen stuff is a little bit kind of uh, more kiddish and less realistic. Uh, this is one that tries to, it aims to be realistic uh, it aims to be kind of engaging, something that I think that adults could watch and kids could watch uh, and be to serial, while at the same time having enough there uh, for kids to latch on to. Um, and I think it works pretty much at any age group. Is Korra or Avatar, the whole last Airbender franchise, 
Is there anything about it that's the same or similar to Game of Thrones? Well, I'll tell you this. It takes place in a fictionalized universe uh, or world uh, just like Game of Thrones does. So that's, uh, you know, it, it shares some similarities with our Earth, but it's still a different world. Uh, actually, one of the things that makes it interesting is that uh, for Game of Thrones and a lot of fantasy, you usually have a kind of uh, medieval Europe-style world, uh, maybe uh, venturing into the Near East Whereas uh, the world in The Last Airbender is very much kind of um, Far East, uh, China, Japan, Korea, South, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, in a kind of fantasy fictional setting, uh, which is really, really cool. It also sounds, just like Game of Thrones, that they've done a great job creating an entire world, and not just characters, but an entire universe that feels real for those characters to inhabit. Yeah, pretty much the only thing they haven't done is uh, created a full language or languages <laughs> for the show. Uh, for which, I mean, come on, guys. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I knew it, I knew we were going to get there, David. I knew we were going to get there. <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us and uh, weighing in on this one. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joining us next is one of my very best friends. He was on episode 54 where he asked the vital question, Hey, know what's cool? Here is Streeter Seidel, Streeter what was I, the best thing in 2012? I'll tell you what the best thing was. It was the legalization of marijuana in Colorado and Washington. That was the best thing in 2012. And why do you think that was the best? All right. Can, can, can we be a little serious? We can be very serious. All this right. Here's the thing. Look, smoking pot's fun. Everyone knows that. Uh, but I don't really think that was what was so amazing about it or important about it. I think it kind of represents a shift among the citizens of America to like get away from this notion of um, minor things send you to jail. So I think like going, I think the amount of people in our jails is insane. Mm -hmm. All right. That's crazy. Also that it's like that it's privatized is insane. The so jails. like the jails. Yeah. Like, so I can own a jail and all of a sudden I, um, there's an incentive for me to have people come to my jail because I'm making money. So I think that that's a, that's a crazy thing. Um, and a lot of that was like minor drug crime, like marijuana. And I think it's like it, going to jail, it, it's a real stigma. It like, really ruins your life. So like what was just some dude selling weed to his friends um, becomes kind of a person, like an unemployable person after that. So I think by saying, you know what, like we're not going to treat this as an illicit substance anymore. This is so widespread. So many people enjoy it. You know, whether uh, it's to help their nausea from chemo or whether they just like getting stoned and watching movies, it's you know? It's to help their enjoyment of Yo Gabba Gabba. Yeah, yeah, like it's to help um, our industry, the comedy writing industry, stay strong. Uh, so I, that to me was like a big shift that I and I can't believe it didn't get more press at the time like I get it Obama big deal that's a big deal Yeah, we were a little distracted yeah but um I thought that when I heard that I was like whoa that is huge that is huge and no one's really talking about it right now I do think and this show is usually about Atari so I don't know the numbers <laughs> off the top of my head, but I do believe that most people in jail or a large percentage of people that are in jail 
are nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah, and look, um, I should also say, like, I don't know what I'm talking about, really. Like, I'm no... I just uh, know legalizing weed. I'm like, go I'm going to go look up on Wikipedia on my phone right now. I'm going to look up privatized prisons. Um, so no, that's take, thing. take everything I say with a grain of salt. But like, Take I, everything you hear on this show with a <laughs> yeah. grain of salt. But I think, the you know, the I don't think it's any secret that, like, people... Um, in jail often don't really deserve to be in jail. Like you should go to jail if you maliciously hurt someone or you're like, you really are a, a, an evil person. Um, not because like you like to get high. You know what I mean? Do you think that this is a tipping point and that only more States? Cause I think with gay marriage, it's pretty clear that uh, right, we're, yeah. we're, we're over we're over the peak on that one, and now more and more states will fall in line over time. I don't know that that's as clear with marijuana. Do you think? Yeah, that? maybe not. I mean, you know what? Like to to be fair, like to to play um, to play devil's advocate, to be on the other side of it, like you know, drug crime is a problem. You know, like drugs do lead to uh, murders and gun violence and bad things. Of but course. would they if they were legal? That's the question. Like that's the great that's experiment. The you know, so. I, I feel like if all of a sudden Colorado and uh, Washington make a billion extra dollars in tax revenue because everyone's just buying uh, weed like they'd buy a beer or cigarettes or something, um, a lot of other states will be like, ooh, hold on a minute. I mean, everyone's doing it anyway. What uh, do you think will change culturally? Not legally, not with uh, you know jail and violent crime, any of that boring stuff. Culturally, what changes would you expect if uh, pot was legal everywhere? not much like i think the people who really like pot smoke pot already Mm -hmm. and they smoke weed and they do whatever they're going to do while they're smoking weed i don't know that people who don't smoke even though i do a stand-up joke about this i don't know that people who don't smoke weed now are going to like all of a sudden come over and just start smoking a ton of weed because it's legal uh, I feel like they've probably had plenty of opportunities to do that and just aren't interested. So it's, it's like people uh, who don't smoke cigarettes, a lot of people don't start just because they're legal. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, so I don't know that would be a huge a huge shift necessarily. But I know that I will be smoking a lot more if I can just go buy it at the store. Yeah. Instead of having some weird dude and his fixie bike come over. Yeah, we're in New York. We're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that, this is how it works here. Uh, okay. That was an excellent selection. Thank you so much, Streeter. Thanks. Coming up next, she accompanied me for what was perhaps the greatest Sunday of my life at the Quidditch World Cup. She writes for Ars Technica. Here is Casey Johnson. Casey, what was the best thing of 2012? Uh, best thing for my for my money, or not even really for my money, uh, was Spotify. I I don't even really remember when it came out. I want to say it was like April. It arrived in the U.S. It, uh, and I've been it just blows like, my mind that it's only been here since 2012 because uh, it seems like it's so it's hard to imagine living without it now. I know, I know. You couldn't like if someone if someone were to take it away from me right now, that would be. Uh, I would be beside myself. It would be really upsetting. Do you? You said for my money, but then you kind of warbled on it. Do you pay for Spotify? <laughs> I I do pay for Spotify, but I'm just I'm just like throwing a throwing a bone out there for the people who who probably don't. And I don't put up with the commercials. Yeah, and still. Yeah. I mean, I would still use it even if I couldn't pay for it and I had to listen to the commercials. I think so. I'm I'm behind it either way. And what do you think makes it the best thing of 2012? Well, a couple things. One is that I just it just has pure the the way it integrates with Facebook just has entertainment value for me. Like watching the things that people listen to is just really 
it's 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 just like a, a kind of voyeuristic that really appeals to me. I like knowing what people are listening to. I think it's fun, and I want people to know what I'm listening to, and especially if it's really embarrassing and something super weird. I want everyone to know I'm listening to that. Oh yeah, of course. See, that's the best part is is that if you're not only watching people, you are also in a way putting on a performance of a musical kind by showing everybody the things that you listen to and. Even even when it's embarrassing things like I've been listening to One Direction a lot and it's like sorry everyone this is this is me right now. The other thing that I really like is it's been great for discovery which is I guess sort of a corollary of the first part but it's like seeing the things that other people listen to has like really really broadened my horizons music wise like I was in such a rut for years just listening to the same things like sick of everything I listened to. But since I started using Spotify, it's been like just incredible the amount of music that I've found. But here's the thing about Spotify, and this also applies to Pandora. Even though uh, these companies have become completely ubiquitous already, and we can't imagine life without them, they're actually not making that much money. The margins are super thin. A lot of people aren't paying for it. And even if they were paying for it, I'm not totally sure that they would be making money on it. So... Do you think these things are going to be here in 2013? Oh boy, I really don't know. But yeah, you make you make a good point. It's like Spotify, I believe, is operating at a loss right now. Um, and even now, like no, like obviously, no one in that situation is happy. Spotify isn't making any money. They can't pay the artists enough to make them really happy. It's just like a lot of artists have complained about it too that they make uh, pennies from Spotify. Yeah, yeah. So financially, it's it's good for no one. I don't know how they're going to make it work. Maybe I should be advocating for more people to pay for it or something like that because I like it so much. Um, I really want them to succeed, but yeah, I really don't know how they can sustain it. I think it's still technically a startup, right? So they have funding, so it's... I guess so. I don't think anyone owns it. It's not like Warner Brothers owns it or anything. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. there's, um, you know, a lot of venture capital in it, but I think they're just, you know, still an independent company. Maybe their best future would be in getting bought by, like, Facebook. Oh, Something I like, like that. that idea. I mean, yeah. the thing is that... The horse is out of the barn now. We can't go back to our pre-Spotify <laughs> lifestyles. You know, I think if you just took it away from everyone, uh, people would be like, wait, what? And that's how people expect to consume music now. They've been doing it for, even though it's been less than a year, it seems like more than a year. And mm-hmm. I don't think it can go away. I think they it's they have to figure it out. Maybe that's naive of me, but that's what it feels like. Yeah, I think they really, they need to get their act together. I definitely depend on it and like having, it's, I mean, it's so different from, the way it was before when you had to like either you had to sort of either buy you had to buy music from like iTunes or you had to use something uh, some streaming service where you had like no control like Pandora which is just like random so this is just like so much you have so much control it's it's just fantastic so much selection and if they took it away I would be I would just be really upset I think it really has changed the way you know, people consume music. It ch- it changes everything. And, you know, it used to be uh, if you want to hear a band, maybe you had to borrow the CD from your friend. I'm going back to ancient history now. <laughs> or maybe, I guess, piracy is a little more recent. But now, if I'm, if I'm mildly interested in a band, I can hear their whole album, uh, maybe with a commercial in it, but the whole album with all the tracks, which is how I like to listen to music, mm-hmm. uh, immediately and for free and anywhere. I like to say that in, with Spotify, you're not really paying because it's some people... Like back in the day when subscription music services first started, people would sort of balk at them like, oh, you're just like you're renting the music. And once you stop paying, it's gone. 
But I like to think that like with services such as Spotify, you are what you're paying for is sort of the ability to impose order on all of the music that's out there because you can like just make endless playlists and you have like everything at your fingertips and it's just great. One of my favorite things on Spotify is when a list of music comes out, you know, Pitchfork's top mm. 500 tracks of the 90s or the AV Club's top tracks of 2012. People will make that playlist online and I used to have to manually cobble that together, but now I can <laughs> listen to that playlist uh, usually in its entirety, almost immediately. I really don't. I haven't gotten into much of like that indie stuff, but I definitely subscribe to the um, the Billboard Hot 100, which is Spotify is just like a way better method of consuming that than like listening to the radio. Spotify, I think that's a great choice for 2012 because I think that's something uh, that's a product whose impact will be felt for many years to come. Yep, I definitely agree. Good choice, Casey. Thank you. Up next are two gentlemen who are on episode 67 of this podcast. Wayne White is an artist who is known for many things, including being one of the main artists behind Pee-wee's Playhouse. And Neil Berkeley is a documentarian known for uh, making a movie about Wayne called Beauty is Embarrassing. Wayne, let's start with you. What was the best thing of 2012? The installation that I created in uh, Virginia at the Taubman Museum of Art was my biggest art installation yet. It was called Big Lick Boom. And it was a giant, expressionistic, crazy city from the 1880s with a, with a whorehouse and a giant uh, railroad baron and a railroad dick puppet and uh, a giant uh, locomotive with turning wheels and saloons and uh, a giant cartoon fight wheel. Uh, it, that was probably the, the highlight for me as far as my personal... What made it the highlight of your 2012? The highlight because it was my biggest uh, creation yet as far as an artist goes. You mean literally biggest as in size? Yeah, literally the biggest thing I've made as an artist. Uh, the biggest sculpture, uh, installation, whatever you want to call it. So that was a real uh, milestone for me as an artist this year. It was creating Big Lick Boom in Roanoke, Virginia. Not a lot of people saw it, unfortunately, because it was in a small town of Roanoke, Virginia. But it was certainly the biggest thing I've ever done. So, yeah. Would you like to keep creating pieces that are just bigger and bigger? Is that maybe a goal for 2013? Yeah, I want to keep making bigger scaled things. I want to take the art out into the world where it can compete with buildings and, uh, and crowds of people and hold its own in, in, in the larger context of the, of, the, of the whole world. Yeah, I think any artist wants to do that. I think every artist wants to create as big a splash as possible. In your mind, is there such a thing as too big? If I <laughs> said, can you make a piece of art that is one square mile or ten square miles, is there a point... You'd say, all right, well, hold on, that's ridiculous. As long as you give me the money and the resources, I wouldn't care how big it was. I'm out to make a giant footprint on the earth. What about you, Neil? You directed this movie this year. What was your favorite thing of 2012? The one thing that I saw this year that really, like, made a dent, and I'll remember the rest of my life, and this sounds silly because everyone saw it, was um, when, and you're in New York, right? But we had the shuttle fly over L.A., and that was this one weird afternoon where everyone was just looking up at the sky. And if you didn't know what was going on, you were wondering why people were walking around L.A.'s 
staring at the sky like zombies. It really looked like a death ray had flown over L.A. and everyone was just gra- their eyes just gravitated to the clouds. You know, we actually did uh, see that in New York too. For those that don't know what we are talking about, I believe the name of the spaceship was the Endeavor, and it was decommissioned. And uh, they're taking her around, showing her off. And I guess the easiest, most PR-friendly way to do that is to strap it to the back of an airplane and fly it real low so everyone can see. So when you looked up, you could actually, you know, with the naked eye, make that out, and it was really uh, something to see. What was it like? What was that experience like when you saw it? Well, it flew circles over L.A., and we all missed it the first time, and then it flew back again. It was so amazing to see adult men and women running out to the parking lot to see an airplane, (laughs) and they were following all over each other. And we're in the hills, sort of tucked in a canyon, so we couldn't get a good view. And it flew right where we couldn't see it. So everyone kind of went inside, and they're like, oh, man, we missed it. And then, sure enough, it flew back over, and you could hear it rumbling for about 30, 45 seconds before it got here. And again, like 20, 25 people raced out to the parking lot to stare at the sky. And then when this thing came over, everyone in their hearts is thinking, this can't be that good. And then when you see it, everyone was like, yeah. And like, even like ironically, people were singing the Star Spangled Banner, but you kind of did feel like we should start singing the Star Spangled Banner right now because it was an impressive, like weirdly patriotic moment to see this thing. Yeah. And how often do you see something like that that gets the whole community excited at once at the same time and you actually got to get up off the couch. You got to go outside to see it. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing, is because I had just shown up that day, and there, there were a few people out in the parking lot just staring at the sky, and I didn't know what they were doing. And it was, and then you looked out in the street, and you saw there were dozens of people just staring up like zombies, as if something had like zapped them in their eyes, and they were forced to look upward. They were like just the Walking Dead. But they were very patriotic walking dead. That was a great day. Excellent selection for the best thing of 2012. But let's talk about another great day, October 30th, 2012. That was the day episode 66 of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show dropped, featuring Jason Narvi. We talked about his time portraying the character of Skull on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and I cannot wait to hear the answer to this question. Jason what was the best thing in 2012? This year, I'd have to say, my friend, would have to be uh, the absence of Mitt Romney from the uh, public discourse. That's what I think it is. So I guess you were saying that's the best thing about the legacy of 2012, because that is certainly not what we experienced during the year. You know, I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily the election of 2012. I'd have to say that particular individual, because it's always fun to keep a, some of the old, uh, shall we say, hacks hanging around. You know what I'm saying? So no, 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 no. We do not miss... John McCain from the public discourse after he lost the presidential election, did we? Uh, no. I guess we did not. No. So therefore, what is Mitt Romney if Mitt Romney is not the aspiring would-be? So maybe what we're saying is that the best thing about 2012 isn't necessarily the election so much as that the election is over. Correct. It was not the election. When is an election ever a good thing? I mean, afterwards, everyone hoots and hollers like, oh, thank God, I knew it was going to turn out the way that I wanted Look how my vote turned the person into the most powerful person in the nation. So no, nobody ever actually misses the election. And we certainly don't miss the loser. But we are so glad we don't have to actually hear their voice. It's got nothing to do with being Republican or Democrat, but I think Mitt Romney just didn't need to be heard from anymore. I tend to agree. Now, there's probably no one on the planet who is more qualified to answer this question. Did you ever pick up on any political messages that were in Power Rangers? You know that everyone was always trying to find, you know, secret meaning behind the fact that, ooh, look, the Black Ranger is black, and the Yellow Ranger is Asian, and the Red Ranger is actually Native American, and yeah. 
Oh, no. I'll do like to think there was some kind of a sort of post-colonial deconstruction on sort of the imperialist tendencies of the West as represented the Rita Repulsa and Lord Zed, but I don't know. Just call me an intellectual. I briefly forgot that you were a film professor. <laughs> no, no, theater professor, my friend, theater professor. God, that's even worse. <laughs> Well, Jason, please say hi to Polly for me, and thank you so much for returning to the show. Glad to be on the show, man. No better way to end the year, my friend. Moving on, our next guest is from the video game debate episode. Please welcome back to the show, Jared Logan. Hi, hello. Welcome back, everybody. And this is probably a great opportunity to announce that uh, Jared will be at the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Live show that we're doing on January something. I forget the date, but we're going to plug it again later during the show. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to be doing Video Game Debate Club Live. And Adam, who's also going to be on the show in a bit, on this show, you're going to hear from him about the best thing in 2012. And he's going to be on the live show. And Jared's going to be at the live show. And we're going to be arguing about video at the games. Podcast Festival. At the New York Podcast Festival. And that's going to be in January 2013. But for now, we're going to stay focused on 2012. Jared, what was your favorite thing of 2012? Well, I got to say, you know, as a comedian, my favorite thing, it's kind of, uh, let's lose my favorite thing to mock in 2012. So my favorite thing from 2012 has 2012 in its name. It was Coney 2012. Coney 2012. It seems like it was more than a year ago, doesn't it? It seems like so long ago, but it happened, well, it it dropped in March, uh, Coney 2012, and, uh, uh, it was amazing. It changed the world. I mean, it's interesting how you like picking on it as a comedian. I want to talk about that. But that was something of a milestone. That was a pretty incredible thing, the way this uh, video that, you know, wasn't a cat falling off a piano or a Will Ferrell related <laughs> or anything like that, no. that it spread Absolutely. more than any other you know, video I've ever had before. No, no, no. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, it's a great cause. And obviously, it's kind of amazing because they got 94 million views at this point. Like, uh Everybody heard about it. Everybody knew about it. Um, so just in terms of, I guess it was a milestone in marketing. Yeah, for sure. And, and the cause is good. I, 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 I do believe Joseph Coney should be captured. But, uh, oh, my gosh, I love train wrecks and just the way it went completely off the rails. Yeah, it really did. It was, it was a, a landmark in marketing, you know, reaching all these people. But then, you know, it, it just it shined twice as bright. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah, it burned brighter when it exploded. I mean, you can tell when you first watched the video, like, something was a little off. Like, it's a really good cause, and I was really touched by these people and their and their plight, but then, like, the director puts himself on the movie a whole lot. You know what I mean? And he's got, like, his little blonde, toe-headed boy in there, like, Daddy, you make the bad guys go away, like, saying stuff like that. And you feel bad, like, disliking that part of it because it's such a good cause. But then later, the guy ran down the street in his underwear and masturbated publicly and totally vindicated your feelings. I didn't follow it that closely, you know? Like, once it became that train wreck, I decided to just not look. But uh, was it the pressure and, like, the sudden fame? Because it was, like, a week after that video hit. Like, it's, it's almost impossible. Almost no one's ever gotten as famous as suddenly as that man did. Yes, and he gave the classic famous person's, like, excuse. He said that he had a bad reaction to medication and was exhausted and dehydrated. 
uh, which I think like all like, you know, starlets from the 50s is what they said when they, you know, had a hit and run and ran their car into a tree <laughs> after having too much bourbon. Then they would check themselves in the hospital saying they had been dehydrated after a bad reaction to medication. Yeah, I can't believe that. I, when I have a bad reaction to medication, I never run down the street and masturbate. I don't know. But he kind of deserved it. I just feel like he deserved it. He, he's like, he paints himself as such a crusader in that video. And the video is so slick. Like, when it first starts, you think, oh, is there a new iPad? Is this the new video <laughs> iPad? It is, it is a very easy video to watch. And I do think that for years... Uh, marketers should, at least, I imagine they will be studying it and trying to figure out, you know, exactly what made it tick and how it connected to people. And I say marketers kind of cynically, like, I'm sure there are nonprofit organizations that represent wonderful causes that are also going to study it and try to figure out how to spread their message. But you know, like, Coca-Cola is breaking this thing down and trying to figure out how they can, <laughs> oh, yeah. use, how they can use it to uh, better market Coke. Well, hopefully... Other, yeah, hopefully other not-for-profit like groups who do this kind of work will learn the lesson, and then the next time something like this comes out, it really will help, and it won't um, have a head of the foundation who uh, just loses it. I did raise awareness about Joseph Cody. I can't possibly imagine you and I would be talking about him right now any other way. <laughs> no. On your year-end, what was your favorite... I, you know, who would have thought in uh, February 2012, one of the best things of the year would have been a warlord in Africa. So it, it did raise his profile, and the Coney 2012 cause specifically uh, seems to, you know, have fizzled along with that guy or, you know, become a little too icky to, for people to really get excited about. But uh, Coney himself, still out there, I suppose. I mean, he did raise his profile, but uh, it seems like... <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what to there. say about. It. I know more about the Avengers there. than I do about Cody. I mean, how you know? You got to think about like all of the donations that were given to this organization. I mean, millions of dollars must have gone to this organization to help people with this this crusade. And then one guy just masturbated it all away. <laughs> it's the most, most expensive masturbation of all time. Yeah, I don't even know what number two would be. Definitely one thing you can say about Coney 2012 is it is a very 2012 thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this will not be on a best of list of 2013. Nah, this, this one's going in like the 2012 Trivial Pursuit edition. It's, That's it's right. quintessential 2012. You know, it's got like some social media going on. <laughs> In 2012 trivia. Jared, thank you so much for uh, sharing your 2012 memories with us. Uh, I'll see you in January at the live show. Thanks, man. I can't wait. It'll be a great debate once again. I am very much looking forward to it. But for now, let's move on to episode 46. One of the biggest Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows of the year inspired a huge reaction. We talked about action. We discussed the world's most dangerous water park, Action Park, and the man who led us through that journey is now back on the show. Here is Seth Porges. Seth, what was the best thing of 2012? So let me tell you, I'll just jump right into it. My favorite thing of this year is an immersive theater experience. It's called Then She Fell, and it's based in Brooklyn, New York. You said immersive theater experience, like that's a, a genre of things I know about. What, what is an immersive theater experience? <laughs> 
well, this is really getting big in New York City. And this is, you know, technically you might call it a play, but it's more like this kind of full 360 deal where they kind of throw you in and the set is part of it. You can rifle through drawers. You can look through pockets. You can do all sorts of stuff. And the biggest and most popular of these, which has gotten tons and tons of its attention, is called Sleep No More. And that's in New York also. And that's got like the six-story warehouse. You just roam free. You wear a mask. Super cool. A lot of people have done this. What makes this other one so, so cool? Wait, wait. I just want to talk about just the general idea of these because I've heard about this. I know it's big because there was a law and order about one, but I've never been to one. And I'm still not totally clear on what it is. It's just like a house full of actors and I can just go and go through things. And I guess the other people are part of it too because they're just walking around. Yeah, imagine like a haunted house that's not haunted. It's the same deal where, you know, your haunted house, you just kind of walk through and stuff happens to you. Okay. And are there actors, actors too? Yeah, there's there's actors and uh, you kind of roam around until you run into an actor and then things happen to you. They might shuffle you to another room. You might kind of get pulled into a closet and somebody might mess with you. The whole idea is you're not just like sitting in a seat. It's kind of theater for, for the video game generation is what I like to call it because you know, you're getting up, you're doing things, you're kind of piecing stuff together on your own. It's kind of like the game Bioshock with a little bit of Zelda in there. Okay, but you're – uh, your thing for 2012, it wasn't just the uh, this idea. It was a specific show. And what was that show called again? It's called Then She Fell. And what's super cool about this is you go to Sleep No More and there are 500, 600 other audience members in there. The thing is a factory. And half the time you're just bumping into other audience members. You can't even like squeeze through the narrow hallways. But what's so cool about Then She Fell, which is a similar concept, but it's it's based on uh, Lewis Carroll's work, like Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. What's so cool about this is that it's limited to 15 audience members per show. So it's really personal, really intimate, and you know, you're not bumping into anybody else. Not to put too fine a point on it, but is it expensive to go to? Because it sounds like a very exclusive experience. Well, it is. It's sort of the, the bottle service of immersive theater. It's pretty exclusive. Only 15 seats. I think I think tickets are about 95 bucks, which, which is a lot. But over the course of the show, they feed you a little bit of food. There's some nice chocolate truffles. They give you some tea in the, in the tea party scene. And they even give you a couple of uh, spirit drinks, if you will. That's not out of line with what it costs to go see a Broadway show. Is that true? I actually don't even know. Uh, I think it probably costs more to go see some of those schmancy ones, for sure. I don't know. Are you fighting for people for Book of Mormon tickets? It probably costs you a little bit more. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a a genuinely new thing that's happening. Do you know if it's happening anywhere outside New York? Well, you know, immersive theater is really blowing up in New York. And I think it's kind of a matter of time before this sort of phenomenon makes it into other cities. Cool. Well, Seth, thanks so much for uh, stopping by and telling us about it. Hey, anytime, man. Moving on, next up is Justin Willett. Justin was on the show last year in what I believe was one of the first 10 episodes, often referred to as, quote, the first 10. He returned this year to weigh in on Prometheus, a uh, very controversial movie. We talked about it opening weekend. Welcome back to the show, Justin. And what was your favorite thing of 2012? I I think... Prometheus might be right up there, actually. Wow! Yeah, it was pretty good in terms of sci-fi movies for 2012. I think that was the uh, that was the high watermark for sure. Uh, yeah, maybe you could argue Looper. I think I probably liked Looper a little bit better, but nah, I don't know. I don't know where else to go, really. Coming from a different place. Oh different yeah, movies. which is nice to get two sci-fi movies. I do feel like Prometheus not a great reaction when it came out. There was a lot of I, I said there was a lot. Of, I alluded to the controversy, but uh, a lot of people did not like Prometheus. And I feel like time, and it's only been like six months since it came out, but I think time and the DVD release 
people are going back and already starting to reevaluate a little. Do you see that? Yeah, definitely. And I think just in terms of like pure spectacle, like whether or not you liked it, it's hard to argue with the spectacularness of it. Yeah, it was definitely batshit insane, you know? Like, you gotta respect that. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty rare, and it's only because it's Ridley Scott and it was the Alien franchise that you'll get a movie that's that expensive but also that crazy. Usually, if you're spending that much money on a movie, you know, you have executives making sure that, like, it hits all four quadrants <laughs> and that, like, moms are going to love it and that it's got something for everyone. Prometheus is, to say the least, not that. Yeah, for sure. So that's your favorite thing of 2012? I had a few other favorite things. I mean, besides movies. Uh, like, in terms of video games, I thought XCOM was definitely worth noting. Oh, I'm so glad we're getting a chance to talk about XCOM. Because you and I uh, actually haven't had a chance to talk about this yet. I didn't even know you were playing it until I saw you liked a tweet I had about XCOM or something like that. The original was one of my favorites, and I feel like anyone who played it then, like, they, we can spot each other now. <laughs> I mean, describe XCOM for those that don't know it. It's a turn-based strategy game, and it's, it's, a, it's a very early one for DOS. And it's, I think, notable for being one of the most copied games ever. It's been remade and like rethought many, many times over the last 20 years. But um, this, I think, I wasn't expecting much and it exceeded all my expectations. I thought it was just just as addictive as the original, like an awesome update to bring it into, into the future. I just didn't know how to stop playing it. So I just beat it as yeah. quickly as I could just to kind of like get it out of my system because it was really weighing on me. Yeah, so- no, it... Highly addictive. It's maybe the nerdiest video game, uh, not only of the year, but of a very long time. Because there's two halves of this game. One half uh, is, you know, strategic, turn-based. you got to move your guys around to kind of get the higher ground and flank the aliens. Uh, And it's turn-based, which is inherently, you know... Uh, it's not like Halo. It's a little dorky. There's some math involved. There's Everything's about the percentage of you hitting your opponent. Uh, it's very it's very Dungeons and Dragons like, but virtualized and with aliens instead. But it it is just like that. I like the original. It's very math based. <laughs> it's it's very board gamey. Yeah, very board gamey. Yeah, yeah. It could be a board game. You could easily make it a board game. In fact, they should. Yeah, all it's just all the calculations, all the dice rolling are kind of going on inside the system. That's the less nerdy half of XCOM. <laughs> the other half of the game is you're managing the base you got to deal with the budget and like the layout of the base and making sure that there's enough energy for the base to build all the new things you want to build and uh it's great and the zero punctuation review of this really pointed out and i think it really sums it up like the two halves really feed into each other nicely where uh when i'm playing you know when i'm doing when i'm out there shooting aliens i'm like i can't wait to recover all this stuff and bring it back to research and then when i'm researching the stuff i'm like i can't wait to bring these new weapons out and shoot some aliens it's good i feel like a lot of those games kind of uh, succumb to the temptation of making it too complicated, but they really just walk the line perfectly between, like, you know, management-style play and it actually being fun. <laughs> really well done. Yeah, it really does. That's that's a delicate balance. Yeah, it's hard. XCOM is one of those games that uh, lends itself, and I think this is a, a really a great thing when a game can do this. You can tell stories about the time you played through it. Like, if you play Call of Duty, the single player anyway, like, it goes down the same exact way every single time you play it. Yeah. But, uh, which doesn't even say it's not replayable. Yeah. But XCOM's the kind of game where you're like, oh, well, my guys are playing, and you know, like, uh, there was this rookie, and he, someone was shot, and he started to panic. Like, th- there's enough complexity that, um, you know, things can emerge out of it. Narratives can emerge from them. Yeah, there's like a sports element to it almost. Like, you really have, like, you get players that are more seasoned, and, like, there's 
there's war stories from it. Like, oh, it was the final thing, and I threw a Hail Mary grenade, and, you know, like, it can go down any number of ways, anytime. Yeah, I had a rookie who uh, was surrounded by Chrysiids, which are, I think that's how you say it. They're kind of like alien, the like Prometheus aliens, you know, like where they lay eggs in your stomach and attack you by swiping you. And he was surrounded, but he, they were all weak, so he just, like, threw a grenade at his own feet and blew them all up. Heroically, this rookie sacrificing <laughs> himself for the good of XCOM. And, uh, you know, it, it was unique to my game, and it, it was a really fun moment. Yeah, when you beat the odds, it's extremely satisfying. It's a, it's a game about beating the odds. I like that XCOM has straight-up, like, saucer people and gray aliens. That's, like, kind of a fun motif. Yeah, it's classic. It's very Area 51. It's perfect. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, Justin, thanks so much for uh, weighing in. I'm glad I got an opportunity to talk about XCOM on the show. Thank you so much. Moving on, I know we've talked a lot about episode 54, Hey, Know What's Cool, (laughs) but we just can't talk about it enough. Here is the final third of the Hey, Know What's Cool recipe (laughs) for success. Emily Axford. Emily, what was the best thing of 2012? Drake. Drake. Now, Drake didn't premiere... You didn't come out in 2012. I already got that shit from Owen. Ooh, am I allowed to say? Yeah, you can wait. You can wait, Chris. Um, So why do you specifically identify Drake as the best thing of 2012? I just listened to him a ton this year. I would say this year. I mean, I'd always been a fan of Drake in the same way that, like, you would, you know, be aware of an acquaintance, you know, a friend of a friend at a party. And, you yeah, I listened to him a little bit. But this year, I just really went all out. Do you think there's was always there for me when I needed <laughs> Is there something about Drake that makes him specifically 2012, either for the culture okay. at large or in reference to you? Well, I would say he had some pretty great moments this year. Um, well, he had some, like, music videos come out, so, like, um, so like Take Care with Rihanna, like, that music video. Like, Take Care, the album came out, like, November 2011, so, of course, like, it wasn't until, like, 2012 that it, it was really like that i heard it yeah exactly (laughs) um and then he had like music videos come out so like the motto came out and that's where yolo came from Mm -hmm. that everyone got really obsessed with and immediately made fun of yeah maybe maybe the word of 2012 if it doesn't go to gangnam style i know i know and so that was drake and then he also got in like um he also got in like a big uh, that big bar fight with chris brown that's cool which i i just love that story like the pictures of the totally destroyed bar it just makes me really happy and i just feel like he's a defender of justice and a drinker of white wine (laughs) (laughs) just the ultimate man all around really he can rap he can sing he was on the grassy he's not afraid to like share his emotions but he also has really ridiculous rap lines too do you think drake will be here forever do you think he's gonna he's built to last as as a career as an i artist. hope so i think he's like i think he's gonna be like a jay-z when jay-z's like like uh out of the spotlight mm-hmm. just, because he's like good at like keeping like a community of people you know he's like good to his people if you listen to his lyrics he really emphasizes that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh oh here's one last thing he uh he unabashedly admits to drinking rosé in several lyrics. What is rosé? It's white wine? Rosé is, no, it's p- 
pink wine. <laughs> so what, they mix red and white together. And I don't know. Like, it's hey, just like a total bad. like bitch drink. drink. It's like your mom and her friends drink rosé. Yeah. And also Drake. Drake doesn't seem like the hardest rapper necessarily. No, he's not. He's very soft. <laughs> yeah. And that's, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. But I think I, it's part of his charm. Maybe that. I'm and it makes to, him more ridiculous too. I'm trying to tie everything to 2012. Maybe that's like a cultural trend. Maybe you, you can do that in rap. I mean. You don't have to be. Exactly. Uh, that's true. We definitely saw rap. Like at first, like we saw like nerdy references leak into rap. And now it's like these like like open hearted, like earnest, emotional, like rap is like totally okay now. Like let's be real with our emotions. Although he's still very masculine. It's always like, oh man, I just, I like, I'm so addicted to like fucking bitches in hotels. And so that's like him opening his heart. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all <laughs> moving on? That's great. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> Moving on up next, one of the swappers from episode 50, the great American DVD swap. I know I'll never forget it. I hope you won't either. Here is Josh Rubin. Josh, what was the best thing of 2012? The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, big time, hands down. I, I'm addicted. Now, you're talking specifically about, because I think The Walking Dead does like two mini seasons, and yes. there may have been one earlier in the year. You're talking about... I'm most talking about recent season. R- right now, and uh, granted, I mean, to be completely honest, I, I ha- think I have one episode, I'm like one episode behind, but what they've done in the five or six that I've seen is like fucking amazing. They, they I, I, Are you all caught up? Can no, I, well, here's okay, the thing. I don't want to so, spoil it no, for you, you. Well, here's the thing. You can spoil it for me. I don't want to know if I want to spoil it for everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I watched the first season of that show, which was only six episodes, yeah. and that pilot was great. And the other ones weren't bad. I watched them all. And then I came back for year two, and I watched that first one, and I was like, do I actually like this show? People hate the second season. They love, they love on the, on the majority, I'd say, they love the first season, and people re- really didn't like the second season. I didn't for even some like the reason. first season that much. I yeah, just, it was just short enough I, that it didn't it, give me a chance to give up. I understand how it's, like, how it's like not for everybody. Like, my girlfriend is, like, where she's coming from is probably not where, like, TV nerds like us and comic book nerds like us were coming from. She's coming from the place of, like, well, people shouldn't be desensitized to seeing human beings torn apart and, uh. you know, <laughs> women... But uh, but for me, it's like you know. I, I guess why I'm so so down with it is I saw the first season. I loved it because I was like, wow, you don't get to see like people getting torn apart on TV, and it's actually pretty good acting. And you know, Breaking Bad I think is like kind of taught us that like you can have a show, but with like crazy circumstances, but also like get wrapped up in you know character and everything else. And The Walking Dead is such a great example of that. But like season two, I came back to it because it just came you know on Netflix. It was like a year after I watched the first season, and I just like I. Ate it all up pardon the pun like i totally totally love what i was seeing even though it was like mostly about character not too much like crazy on the action well, I, but think I, just, that, like, I think that's sucked actually up. it i think the best part of that show um you wouldn't think this but the best part isn't necessarily seeing the zombies rip people right. up the most the more interesting part of that show <laughs> and this is true of any show is the character the character that that makes a good show it, it really does yeah i think and i think that it seems like is what they've leaned on a little heavier in season three. And I've heard this from a lot of people yeah. that season, and I didn't even get into the part of season two that everyone complains about. I know there's a farmhouse. I know people yeah. complain about Carl, like get over here, Carl, or eh, where's Carl whatever. or something Yeah, like they that. don't like the kid, which, you know, is I didn't fine. see any of this. I'm like going on internet memes here. <laughs> But uh, see, I've heard from many, many people that season three was a marked improvement, season which is three, exciting. I like when there's good three shows is on like, TV. It's like the happy medium, I think, for people. What I'm realizing is like season three is fantastic because it's 
action, it's like 50-50 every episode. So you're going to get your fix of action. You're definitely going to see some like heads busted open. But you're also going to see like fucking like main characters die. Which is crazy. Like every episode. I mean, that's that's like what happened in season two. Is like, you're going to kill this person? Really? And they do it. And it's just like, man, the show keeps on going. And it's still good. And you like, yeah, you miss them. And yeah, it's sad. But like, just like live it with these people. You know, you that's feel just lot. as traumatized. Yeah, that's a lot like the comic book. Um, except it's easier to kill off characters in a comic book where you're not attached. The producers no aren't attached to a great actor or they're not friendly with an actor. It's much easier to kill someone no in a shit. comic book yeah. and replace them with anyone than yeah. uh, it is to do it on a TV show. Yeah, so absolutely. I admire that the TV producers are doing that. I think I think that's just the biggest pull for me. I'm just like, wow, you dare do that? That's you can do that on TV, and and you can you know like we're just not used to seeing you know main characters just get uh, popped off, you know their stomachs torn open or whatever, and uh, that's the thing that's like amazing to me, and and I think that's just why the, the season's only going to get better. And my buddy told me, and I don't know anything about the compendiums of the comic books or anything. They're 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 still writing them, mm-hmm. they're still going, and they can say, and uh, AMC reportedly said we can, we're going to indefinitely continue this series so long as people watch it i mean we can keep basing these episodes off of the comic book they're still popular yeah, there's a million of them it's walking crazy. dead such a brand now if you go to a comic book store they have like shelves and shelves of walking dead stuff yeah. um games action figures which is weird because it's you wouldn't necessarily think it's an action figure show yeah. um and even the telltale adventure games are very highly regarded and even the ios walking dead game yeah i haven't played it yet just came out Apparently not terrible. So yeah. Robert, is it Robert Kirkman or Roger Kirkman? Uh, it's Robert Kirkman. Anyway, he's doing pretty good yeah, for himself, no and I'm glad the show took him three years. But I think it sounds like so they finally good. figured themselves it's so out. So worth it. Yeah, completely. And Greg Nicotero, who like started in makeup and special effects, and is now like directing and producing the show, which That's is cool. awesome. Good for The Walking Dead. Way to get it back on track. Let's stick on this TV theme. Let's talk to the man who was on the last Jeff Rubin, the last not this Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show of 2012. Here is TV critic Alan Sepinwall of HitFix.com and author of the new book, The Revolution Was Televised. Alan, what was the best thing of 2012? Well, outside of TV, and there's a lot of that, I would probably be going to see The Avengers in a movie theater two or three times. I forget how many I saw it now, but just sort of going to see not only all the, these characters that I grew up reading in all these comics that I spent way too much money on as a kid and a teenager and as an adult and today, uh, but also just sort of seeing Joss Whedon, whose career I'd been following for a long time, who's making this little show that could called Buffy the Vampire Slayer and sort of learning as he go, suddenly being given the keys to the kingdom of this movie that was going to gross $1.5 billion or whatever ungodly sum it did and doing it so well – And every time I saw it in the theater, just how pumped up the crowd was and how they were getting all the jokes and getting all the little Whedonisms and how he just sort of understood implicitly, A, who these characters were, B, what was going to excite the audience, and C, just how to make a fun, kick-ass summer action movie that didn't make you feel, you know, like you walk out of it saying, "Eh, all right, that was fine. I got to see shit blow up. It was awesome. There's a great quote in your book that I totally agreed with. Uh, I believe it was an executive at the at the WB who was talking about uh, Joss Whedon's success with the Avengers, and she said, uh, "Of course, it made a bill. I expect everything Joss Whedon does to make a billion dollars, and I feel the same way too. I don't know why Serenity didn't make a billion dollars. So now that he's finally at that level, I'm really excited to see what he does next." Yeah, I, I cannot wait. It's very. It's always great when people, you know, there are some people who are like, you know, oh, I liked this band before they were popular, and they get annoyed. I'm the opposite. I'm so excited whenever anything I like 
crosses over into the mainstream so that more people can see it. And Joss, you don't get more mainstream than Joss Whedon doing Avengers in 2012. What elements of Joss Whedon TV shows did you see in the Avengers? Oh, I saw a lot. I saw, A, he sort of, he comes up with a, a, a specific approach and a backstory to all these characters. He's really sort of broken them down and figured out what made them tick. Even, even the characters who'd been in previous movies played by these actors, it felt like he had a better understanding of even Tony Stark than Jon Favreau did. He knew exactly who the Hulk was. He had a much better take on Hulk than any previous adaptation ever. Yeah, this was the Hulk. best Hulk movie somehow. Yes. Um, so he just sort of, he figured it out. He knows about just sort of how a team comes together. All of his shows are team shows in some ways, even things like Buffy and Dollhouse where they were clearly single lead things. It, it felt very much like a really expensive Joss Whedon TV show. Yeah, I mean, even Buffy has the Scooby gang. Angel has Angel Investigation. So he, he's always been about teams and which yes. become families. Yes, I exactly. Think on and, the Avengers too. We didn't quite get to the family stage yet, but there was definitely a case of what, isn't it going to be so much fun when you have the two geniuses, Bruce Banner and Tony Stark, interacting? You know, isn't it going to be so cool when you've got the two powerhouses and Thor and Iron Man beating each other up? Won't it be great when Hulk is chasing teeny little Scarlett Johansson through the helicarrier? I mean, he just he really sort of figured out, A, what made them tick, and then B, how they were going to interact in an interesting way. Yeah, you know, I saw that movie twice in theaters, I, and then there was a rumor that did not turn out to be true that they were going to, you know, to kind of goose the numbers at the end of the summer, release a director's cut in theaters at the end of the summer, and I was like, oh shit, am I going to have to go see The Avengers a third time? Because I definitely, if there was like 10 new minutes, I definitely would have gotten to see it in theaters it, it, it Actually, the, the true story is it's 10 minutes and they're all about shawarma. <laughs> I would see that. I would see that. Did you watch um, on the DVD? There's like a, a special, a short film, and it actually has Lizzie Kaplan in it. Did you see that? I've not seen that. No, not so good. You can skip it. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. But we have to move on. Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show listeners, let me take you back. The date was May twenty second, two thousand twelve. The podcast was episode forty five, the Star Trek Experience, and my guests were Irene and Griffin a husband and wife duo who worked at the Star Trek Experience in Las Vegas and do improv around Chicago, including Star Trek improv. Irene and Griffin, what was the best thing of 2012? Well, for me, um, I saw this show by a theater company in Chicago called The Hypocrites, and they reinterpret Gilbert and Sullivan plays in um, in the round, and uh, it's a big circus atmosphere, and... It's so much fun. I went to see the Mikado yesterday, and uh, I started my year 2012 with the Pirates of Penzance, so it felt like a very complete, um, exhilarating, fun experience for live theater. All right. Pretend, just for a second, I'm just culturally ignorant, and I don't really know anything (laughs) about Gilbert Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan, I know how to say their names. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Why would I know to say the names? Huge fans, love their work. But if I if I had never seen one of their plays, what 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 are they about? They were uh, they were a duo who made um, like comic operas in the late eighteen hundreds. And my parents took me to see their plays, or we watched their movies. There's a Pirates of Penzance with Kevin Klein and some other woman, and. Um, I hated it. I thought it was so boring uh, because it's very like stuffy Victorian, like courtly, 
comic um, music. So picture something like that that's three hours long, cut down to like an hour and 15 minutes with all of these like young, fun people who are playing their own instruments and singing these operatic songs. And it's funny and joyful. That's the best way I can describe it, I guess. Oh, it's it's like in like there are all around you right yeah so you're constantly moving with the play it's happening all around you all the time someone else uh, on this show someone we talked to about action park uh said that their favorite thing of the year was sleep no more or they said uh, a sleep no more like show i already can't remember what it was but uh <laughs> they they said some uh but immersive theater experiences and it sounds like this is kind of one of those what are you doing during the show what are your responsibilities uh well you just sit and and watch it and uh be swept away by talented people who are, um, they, uh, they make you move as they walk towards you. So I guess your involvement in it is being a shifting living audience. If that makes sense. What does it mean that they, you have to move as they come towards you? So you have to like get out of your seat. Yeah, there's no real seats. People are just like leaned up against a wall or sitting on the stage. It's interesting. Theater that gets up in your grill seems to be the theme between those two shows. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's no longer a passive experience. That sounds like a fun space and it sounds like completely different uh, from the show that Seth described, but uh, similar in theme and maybe part of a trend. Yeah, I I think so. I think it's where it's at. Griffin, what about you? Best thing of 2012? I'm a big fan of this dude. Uh, He's been around for a while, but uh, Ty Siegel. Uh, put out three albums this year, uh, and uh, I, it takes a it takes a lot to get me uh, to go out to to see music acts. Uh, I did a lot of that when I, I was younger, uh, and I saw him I think two times this year. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, uh, he did three albums. He did White Hair or White Fence with Ty Siegel uh, Hair, which is like a psychedelic album. He did uh, Slaughterhouse in the Summer, which was uh, with his band, Ty Siegel Band, with uh, Michael Cronin, uh, <laughs> amongst others. Uh, and that was just like kind of like a face-melting, uh, like, Hawkwind-like album, like Garage Hawkwind album. And then um, the he just came out with Twins, which is kind of like uh, just a straightforward kind of Ty Siegel garage rock album. Uh, so that was pretty inspiring, someone doing three things that are uh they were all really good and uh you know you're young you can do a ton of stuff and uh get it done and now unlike gilbert and sullivan i am not ashamed to admit that i have no idea what you are talking about so is there anyone you would compare him to uh or or is there anyone you can compare him to um yeah i mean he's a part of the um uh like the san francisco kind of garage revival um so if you're aware like black lips or uh the ocs uh, are from san francisco um girls the band girls um uh different guys like that just just kind of like reviving kind of garage rock uh has been something that's been going on in san francisco lately so that's kind of like a hotbed of of music right now uh so that that's kind of cool that that's that's happening all of these kind of uh uh, do yourself albums. A lot of them are coming out on labels created by by artists like like Castle Face and and whatnot that that are kind of um, 
labels created by artists that are they're putting up other artists. So uh, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool, but we have to keep this train of moving. So here is a man from, that is right, episode 42. His name is Henry Maza, and he is the chief creative officer of the world's greatest movie theater, the Alamo Draft House. Henry, what was the best thing of 2012? Best thing of 2012? Uh, I mean, Step Up Revolution has to be the best thing of 2012, doesn't it? I guess so. It, it answered all the questions that Step Up 3D had uh, had left unresolved, uh, and at long last, we found out that uh, a group of precocious teens can save their neighborhood through the power of dance. And that's, I mean, what else? What else could be better? Now, I am unfamiliar with the Step Up franchise. You will have to forgive me. Does Step Up Revolution uh, directly follow the storylines of Step Up 3D and the other Step Up films? No. Uh, the the step up film one and two has a little bit of a of a, a thread, but uh, Step Up Revolution takes the 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 beloved format to a new town, and uh, just a couple of the dancers from other movies have to show up and be like, "Oh, hey, you guys need some help with the dance moves? I'm here. Let's do this." What makes Step Up Revolution so good? You know, it's kind of a joke to say that Step Up Revolution is the best thing of 2012, but it also really was one of the best times that I had in a movie theater. Uh, it is formulaic garbage but uh so is the avengers and the difference was that uh i wasn't going into step up revolution wanting anything out of it that i didn't get and dance numbers just make people happy and so you're sitting in a theater and then everybody's just like let's just solve this problem with a big dance and you walk out and you're like yeah yeah, that's exactly how the world needs to operate. Step up revolution is correct me if i'm wrong a flash mob themed movie is that correct? It is. So what is the plot of that movie? What has this work? <laughs> First, there's a flash mob, uh, a group that's doing flash mobs, and they're uh, just doing it to do it, and they're, they're building a YouTube audience. Does this movie have one of those shots where you see a YouTube video and you see the views beneath the YouTube video going up a lot, you know? Yes, and they're constantly checking their YouTube yeah, views, yeah. and they're like, oh, we hit a million! And they have to hit, I don't know if it's a million or ten million views before any, anybody else uh, on YouTube. And then, uh, and if they do that, they win a cash prize. And if they get that cash prize, they can save the cafe where they like to hang out or something. Uh, but then they also have to convince the developer of the condos because you know condos are the most evil thing in the world. Uh, we're going to go in where they where they had this cafe, and so they have to show the developer that there's a there's a vibrant community here, and they do that through the power of flash mobs and dance. And I think I did kind of. You know, we do so much uh, trying to build audience, and whether that's inside the theater or we started our own uh, YouTube show on the Cinefix Network this year. So I was like, yeah, okay, that's a great tool for building audience. We don't do enough flash mobs. We just, like, interview film directors. That's never going to get 10 million views. Now, Step Up Revolution is the fourth Step Up movie, and it's based on a somewhat ancient formula. So what is it that they added in Step Up Revolution that's new in 2012? Well, I mean, 3D. But there was already Step Up 3D, wasn't uh, there? Dancing vertically up and down the side of buildings. That's pretty cool. Uh, and, you know, that's all you need. 3D dance. Um, and inside that old formula, uh, that, that, that's enough. I guess the thing about Step Up is, even though it's a formula, you know, that formula works. Like, uh, I didn't see Step Up, but I saw Warrior pretty recently. And Warrior, which I thought was pretty good... Uh, is the oldest formula in the book. But if you execute that formula well, uh, there's a reason that people keep going back to it. It's because it works. 
Yeah, for sure. Great. Settled. Up next is my guest from episode 55, the episode we swore we would never speak of again, and yet here we are doing just that. Here is Paul Shear from The League and NTSF and his own podcast, How Did This Get Made? Paul, what was the best thing in 2012? Well, Jeff, I am happy to be back, and uh, I'm very excited to share with you my little-known treasure of 2012, and it is a CW show called the L.A. Complex. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Well, let me tell you why I'm familiar with it. I am a huge fan of Degrassi, and the L.A. Complex not only stars someone from Degrassi, oh, what's her name? Um... I don't know because I'm not familiar with Degrassi, but I think it's the one of the main girls. Yeah, she's Manny on Degrassi. I should know her name. Oh, Cassie Steele. Cassie yes, Steele. Yes, Cassie Steele. Exactly. So yes. she was from Degrassi, and I believe the director is also um, Stefan Brogan, who is the one of the adults on Degrassi, and he was a kid on the original, and he directs a lot of You're them. You're right. And, you know, the interesting thing about this show, just by the way, because I'm imagining whoever is listening right now is like, I don't like Degrassi. I'm not interested in this. Like I have to. Well, wait, wait. Just the most important part about this is that it's created, also directed occasionally by Martin Garrow, who is a um, writer for Bored to Death. So it's basically Degrassi through the eyes of a Bored to Death writer. So it's a really elevated concept. So I just want to put that out there. So if you were almost checking out of this, I want you to check back in and go. Oh, wait a second. I'm interested. I believe I'm going to make them check back out again. The L.A. Complex started at some point in its gestation was a Degrassi spinoff. But then I never actually watched it once it aired. Well, basically what it was, I mean, from what this is, again, me, like the game of telephone telling you what I think this show is. It was a show created uh, for Canada, uh, Canadian television that then was bought by the CW. So the entire show is full of Canadian actors. And it and basically the characters on the show are Canadians who are trying to make it in Hollywood. And I would say 90% of the show is shot in Canada and then 10% of the exteriors are shot uh, here in LA. So it is very, by definition, it is a Canadian show. So what is the show actually like now that it's on the air? What, what makes it great? Okay. I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe it to you. I guess I can say it is a soap opera written by someone like us. It's a soap opera where you really... Like where the where bad things I'm I'm getting like uh, hard to describe it I got because I want to make sure I, I do the best job selling it I can and just say it's a soap opera where every character makes the wrong choice and does it over and over again and for me it's so fulfilling because you know a lot of these dramas that I'm used to seeing like the characters get very close to making a bad decision and they don't actually do it here the characters are so deeply flawed it's so kind of raw. And it's funny, and it's super, super dark. I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you that one of the characters becomes a full-blown porn star in the first season. Um, Another character who is a famous rap star, I would imagine that he was based off 50 Cent. He is gay, but he's on the down low. And there's some crazy things that happen with his life. That Again, I don't want to spoil it for you, but this is what I'm going to say. Give it three episodes. The first episode, you're like, Sheer, what are you talking about? This show is is just bad. And it's not. Because the second episode, you're like, wait a second. This show is kind of genius. And then by the third episode, you're like, holy crap, I am hooked 100%. Um, it's really, really fun. Paul F. Tompkins plays himself. 
um, as well as Marilyn Rice Cub. Paul F. Tompkins has a much longer arc, though. Um, Alan Thicke is the head of a religious uh, television network, uh, kind of making fun of the whole Kirk Cameron stuff. It's a very pointed and uh, and funny like look at like all the bad side of Hollywood, and uh, I highly recommend it. And there's your comedy credentials. Also for your nerd credentials, I believe uh, Jewel something I can't think of her name. Um, Jewel State from, from Firefly, uh, Firefly is on the uh, show. Is on it as well. And I always wondered why she wasn't. I don't see her more often because a lot of it, a lot of the Firefly cast I've seen more recently, but her I haven't seen as much of, even though she's great on that show. Uh, she's amazing on the show. And my wife and I were walking around uh, L.A. and we acted, all the acting on the show, for the most part, is pretty phenomenal. Like there's a couple performances, Jewel being one of them, is just like crazy, crazy, crazy good. Um, but we met up this with this one guy and we saw him on the street and we both freaked out. I haven't had like a fan moment like that. Like, since I was a kid, I was like, oh, my God, you are the best guy in the entire show. Like, I think the guy was a little bit freaked out that we, like, ran down the street to, to meet him. Caldrick King, as we play on the show. That's the, the, the 50 Cent kind of character on the show. Did he recognize you? Uh, he did, actually, which made it a lot less awkward because, like, my wife really went in, like, in a big way. Like, my wife was like, your performance on that show deserves an Emmy. And I was like, yeah, we think you're great. And he's like, oh, dude, I know you. And I was like, great. So then we became like friendly. We weren't super weird people, um, even though we were. For whatever reason, me being on television kind of helped that a little bit. You're also like a noted connoisseur of weird culture, let's say. Yes. And, and you know what? A, a few people I've talked to about this show, they're like, oh, you just like it because it's bad. I honestly think it's good. Like, I think that, you know, like, it's a soap opera for sure. But it's like the best soap opera that you could see. That's how I feel about it. I really do feel like they are making active choices here. And again, like Martin Garrow is a guy who is a smart guy. Like he, you know, he's written on a bunch of really cool, interesting things. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I would say it's, it's like Saved by the Bell, the college years done right. (laughs) Finally, finally. (laughs) This show, unfortunately, has not been picked up for a third season. Uh, they did uh, a big summer season, and then they kind of came back with the second season. So there's only 19 episodes total, so it's not that much of a time commitment. Yeah, I like that. I like knowing that I can get to the end, that it's finite. Oh, and I have to say, one of the best wrap-up endings. Like When I saw the end of the show, I was like, whoa, hats off to you. You like it basically was a great end. Like if they didn't have a third season, like if they had a third season, they could definitely continue it. But if they didn't, it was like beautiful ending. And it it really was fulfilling as a, as a watcher of the show. I was like, yep. Okay. I don't ever have to see these characters again. I feel like I know where they've gone. You know, I heard about it when it was on the air, but it's one of those shows that's a little bit off my radar to say the least. So I didn't hear much about it after that, but you're making me want to go back and check it out. Thanks for uh, weighing in on this one, Paul. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for letting me talk about this uh, like a stupid fanboy. Speaking of Degrassi, let's check in with Jake Goldsby, who you may remember from episode 41, where we discussed his time playing the character Toby Isaacs on Degrassi. Jake, what was the best thing of 2012? A little movie called Cabin in the Woods. Oh my God, Jake, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> right now, on my desktop... Uh, I have the the raw pieces of a animated GIF I am trying to make. This is my other side project is animated GIFs of uh, right from the beginning that scene of Marty and the transforming coffee cup bong, oh. bong collapses into a coffee cup. 
just just the best. I was hoping someone would bring up Cabin in the Woods. I, I don't want to be too spoilery about it yet, even though it's been out for a while. It's like the popularity of that movie is going to be a slow burn where people are discovering it for years. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so what what was it that you enjoyed, again, without trying to spoil it, uh, about that movie? Without spoiling, it's it's kind of like... It's like someone went into my brain and was like, let's make a movie out of what this stupid person thinks of of what he wants to see in a movie. Like, it was just... I, I'm a huge Joss Whedon fan, and I'm a big horror movie fan, which I know isn't really uh, unique subculture to belong no, that's to. A, that's a Venn diagram with a large amount of crossover, Joss Whedon fans and horror movie fans. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Venn diagram is just a circle. But um, it's, I don't know, I thought it was, it was just so perfect. Like, it was clearly made by guys who loved the subject matter they were tackling, and, you know, it had, uh, you know, Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins, who are just absolutely fantastic actors, and it was just, it was just so well done. It was funny without being too over the top, and the way it kind of subverted all the, I, I love the fact that in that first scene, you have you know, Chris Hemsworth show up as like this big muscular jock. And then he's talking about, I think it's like talking about physics and how, how he's into that. And it was just such a, it was totally not what I was expecting. I just had so much fun in the movie theater watching that movie. Yeah. I mean, if you have not seen Cabin in the Woods, I think it may be my favorite movie. Certainly the most underrated movie thus far. Well, everyone that's seen it loved it, but you know, uh, it, it hasn't quite reached the audience it maybe deserves just yet. No, but I, as you said, I can totally see in like three or four years that movie just being, there being like conventions for that movie, just being a loved like underground cult flick. Okay, that was great, but we have to move on. Next up, the <laughs> other competitor from episode 52, Video Game Debate. Here is Adam Conover. Hello. Adam. I was the winner, I believe. The winner. Debate. Yeah. Um, so I am very excited to hear your answer to this question. What was the best thing of 2012? Uh, for me, and maybe it's just because I'm excited about it right now, um, I've been playing uh, the Xbox Live Arcade game Fez, which debuted, I think, in April to like rave reviews. But I just got an Xbox, and I've been playing it. And this uh, game, to me, is like the perfect video game. Or it just hits so many of my video game sweet spots that don't get hit often enough. Like, um, it's uh, a game where you're... Uh, First of all, it's like a uh, you know innovative uh, platformer where if you haven't heard about it, the gimmick is that it's two D. You're in a two D world, but you can this rotate. Be simple to explain, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Real quick, uh, you're in a two D world. You're in a two D world, but you can rotate to see any of the four sides of that two D world. It's a little bit like what was it, Super Paper Mario for the yeah, for the Wii? Yeah, that's actually a good way of explaining. But better, it's like a way better version of that. So there's very cool little physics platformer puzzles. So you're moving in two on a two D plane within yeah. a three D world, and in addition to like moving and jumping, like you can any video game you can rotate the 3d world yep. and manipulate and so you that. can solve puzzles by changing by changing the perspective, perspective of the yeah. world yeah and so that's got very, it everybody that's very cool and very fun but that's like the gimmick selling point of the game what i love about the game is that like first of all it's a game that's based on like 2d exploration like you explore this huge world and the map got is a hint of a metroidvania in there. it's got a metro it's got a metroid or castlevania feel for sure yeah and you go explore and like find your way in new areas and maybe you'll see something 
something and say, oh, I can't figure out what this is yet. But then later on in the game, you'll find the puzzle piece that explains what the thing is. And then um, also it's got one of my other favorite things from games. And you almost never see this see this together. It's got like um, uh, environmental puzzles where there will be um, like a carving on the wall that you can't quite make sense of. But then you see something else and it makes sense in context or you uh, are sort of deciphering symbols or at one point you decipher a whole alien language and you use that to understand other things two alien languages well one's a language and one's a number system that's what it is (laughs) but so uh, that's what i love from games like mist and riven riven is one of my favorite games ever where you're just the sole person walking around this environment and learning about what happened in the world you know many centuries ago uh from doing that um that's uh that you know that's one of the things that really gets my game dick hard can i say that that's you can way say it that is really gets my game dick hard and so the the combination of those two things is just so pleasing and then what i've only because i'm at the very end of the game now i I have almost everything and uh what i realized is oh and by the way my life is empty (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've realized that you can never really find true happiness through uh achievements or uh but also the game is the game is like very it's incredibly beautiful and it's 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 got it's got it looks it's retro it's got a it's got a very distinct and enjoyable style yeah exactly it's a little bit like cave story Mm -hmm. as a game in that it's uh, it's like 2D, it's like, you know, pixel art retro, but it's not just that, because that's easy. It's like, it, there so much love is put into every single pixel in this game. Yeah. And then the music is amazing, too. It's the by, this guy, really by this guy, by this guy, Disaster Piece. I bought the soundtrack. When was the last time I bought a game soundtrack? I don't know. I don't know but, and the game, the music changes as you move. But here's the, here's the cool thing. I know we've talked about this game, and I feel like maybe this is something that you don't know about it, um, is that, like, a lot of the puzzles are, first, there's very easy platform puzzles and then there's like you know sort of like read the symbol on the wall puzzles that aren't that difficult but as you go through the game they get more and more difficult and uh so i got to the point where i solved basically everything that i could and i started doing just a little bit of googling you know and i realized uh that the puzzles some of the puzzles in the game are so hard that they're actually almost impossible for one person to solve and that what people were having to do was going on message boards and collaboratively figuring out what the solution to these these puzzles were and these aren't things that you need to like this complete is, is the game the, totally the, is this the monolith one this is the monolith so, and then also the book there's a book so in the people game people solve this if i understand it correctly Literally by brute force, just like all right, left, yeah. right, left, right, left. That's not it. Left, that, left, left, right. That is that's the. Not it. From what I've read, that's the best solution that they were able to find. Maybe there's a clue hidden somewhere that they and weren't they, able it to worked. find. They figured it out. Though, yeah. I, last I checked, and I haven't played the game in a few months. No one actually knew why that was a solution. Yeah. But they did figure out, you know, whatever the and proper so, input was. I love that because that brings into elements of like an alternative or alternate reality game. You know, where it's like people, yeah. uh, where where that's a whole genre of game that can only be solved through a couple hundred people putting their heads together and sharing clues. Do you like alternate reality games? I don't play them, but I. I think they're really cool, and I like reading about. They're like, certainly cool. In I love theory. dipping in and like seeing what's up with them. You yeah. know, I think it's because I just love puzzle games. You know, so I I thought that was a really cool. Just like I've never seen a game designed that way, where it's like the first ninety nine percent of the game you do by yourself, and then after you've completed the game, if you want to read the one last inscription and find out like the very final secret, you have to go talk to other people and put your heads together. I think that's super cool. I've got almost I finished almost everything in the game, but it's just such a 
and you know, I played it with my girlfriend. It was really wonderful just to explore this world, and then like you know, uh, but as you're exploring, you start getting sucked into these deeper puzzles. I just found it to be such a a, pl- a pleasurable experience, and it's just a joy of a world to wander around in. So here's my thing with Fez. Yeah, I and, know we disagree about it. I know we've, we've talked about it a lot, so I'm sorry you're having to hear me. <laughs> no, it's I, fine. I, it's, this is for everyone else. I thought Fez was a little up its own ass. It was. I found it extremely pretentious. And I think it's cool and admirable and exciting that video games can be pretentious. Black Ops 2 is a game that I've used as a negative example uh, (laughs) a lot in this episode. But I actually think that game's a little pretentious, too. And I think it's cool that video games have matured to the point where they can be pretentious just like any other piece of art. But it's so in love with itself and asks... It sets the bar so high and asks you to do things that I personally think... Adam, I guess, subscribed to Games Magazine or some shit. Yeah, I love Games Magazine. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I think, like, the idea to me of, like, sitting there with a pen and paper and, like, breaking a code and, like, trying to figure out what everything said could not be less fun. I understand that's not your type of game, but that doesn't make it pretentious if that's not your type. Like, like I mean, I don't... I, I It baffles me, like, what would be pretentious about it because, I mean, it's like... Is it pretentious for someone to strive to make like a beautiful game? Because it's a gorgeous. It, he was. It like, I want to make game. a beautiful. And I enjoyed it. And I, I suppose I would recommend playing it. I just found like that extra layer that was on top of it. I don't know. It, it had very high aspirations that I felt like it didn't always hit. You know, okay. like it's it's a very it's a very like capital A piece of art. Again, it's exciting to see. Okay, a video I'm game. glad you agree about that. I, yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's a very ambitious uh, game, and I liked it. I liked the platforming. I I am not as strong as you. I googled. I was like, "What is this alphabet?" I just googled it, and I still I didn't even enjoy translating it, having the answer given to me. I I well, had of course to... you didn't enjoy even enjoy it that way. But I was like, you know, still manually transcribing it with the alphabet. I was like. Fuck this. <laughs> I mean, I got I the alphabet I didn't quite get myself. I had to ask someone for a little hint about it, like what like just what the clue to the clue was. And then once I saw what the clue was, the flash of it washing over me made me like stand up right, and so go, This is amazing. Let me explain where the alphabet comes from, and then we have to move on because we could we could argue about this all day. <laughs> so the way you crack the alphabet, I guess this is a spoiler. Oh, are you gonna play, spoil it? Yeah. Okay. But you know, you can fast forward if you plan on playing Fez and being insane like Adam and doing this yourself. There is one room in the game, by the way, least functional fucking map system I've ever seen in the video. It is game. a tough map system, but there are tricks you can you can use to get it. So around there's easier. a room in the game that I could not describe the location of because of the terrible mapping system. And in that room, there is a dog, no, a fox jumping over a sleeping dog. And you, as the gamer, are to intuit that this is referring to the famous sentence, the quick brown dog jumped over the, the, quick the brown, brown fox jumped, jumped over, over the, the lazy, lazy dog. dog, which is a sentence that I believe they used to use to te- test typewriters because it uses every letter well, in the alphabet. Well, it's a famous sentence. Yeah, it uses every letter it's in the alphabet. It's a famous sentence. But, but it is. It and is. then in that room, there's a glyph, and that's like the Rosetta Stone you use. Yeah. But, Fuck you, game. No, I loved it. I loved it. Because <laughs> I, I didn't get that, but I did go to that room and go like, oh, there's some animals there. That's strange. And then I figured out that that was the room that had the Rosetta Stone in it. I asked our friend Owen uh, Parsons. Who will uh, be on this episode. Who will be, yeah, who's on it. Um, uh, You know, okay, wait, I don't see it. What is it? All there is in here is some animals. And he was like, what animals? And I was like, I got it! I got it! That was it! And then I looked, oh wait, let's see the, the words, all they all match up. Here's the thing, I know you love Braid, how would you, how could you say that Fez is Braid's pretentious? pretentious. Braid is way more pretentious. But the, but the puzzles Fe- in Braid are very, the gameplay yeah. in Braid is very, very fair. But, Everything in that you need to solve a puzzle in Braid 
is on the screen in front of you. I that agree. Game is very fair. I agree. But all the stuff that's under the surface in Braid are all those weird poems and oh, things, yeah, yeah, which have definitely. nothing to do with the gameplay. They're just like on top of it, and it's like there's no real answer. It's just sort of like poetry. Whereas like Fez, through playing the game, you're like discovering this hidden world, yeah. which is just to me the like the deepest joy in a game. That's why I've always loved Metroid games. Why I've always loved the Mist series. Um, so many se- or the Zelda games. You know that you w- when you go into a room and you're like. I know what happened here. I That's to me, I love so much. I complain know. about it because it asks mm-hmm. asks of me things I am simply not willing to do. <laughs> That's uh, totally but it bad. is a, a really remarkable game, and it's an achievement, and it, it, I don't mean to dismiss it because um, I, I love indie games. I love people that are pushing games in new directions and uh, trying to push the envelope, and Fez is definitely that. You know, the fact that we're arguing right now actually <laughs> segs nicely into one more plug for uh, the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin live experience that is going to be January 12th at 6.30 at the People's Improv Theater. You're going to be there. Jared's going to be there. Yep. We're going to play the metagame live. Scott's going to be there. He's going to play the theme song to the show live. Ooh. You didn't even know that. That's exciting. I didn't know that. That's exciting, right? Yeah, so and, if you liked uh, this. Other people are going to be there, too. So uh, it's a little, the meta game. If you go back and listen to that episode, it's a little more focused than the, the Adam and I pulling at each other's hair like we just did. Uh, but <laughs> no really, way, we got into it. That's, this was exactly the conversation I so wanted. So if you want to see that live, like I'm yeah, not, yeah. What's funny about doing that too is uh, when we did the meta game episode, we were like, "This is fun." I would never want anyone to see me doing this. You know, <laughs> we were like so ashamed of what of how we were yeah. playing. So I'm looking forward to bringing that to the People's Improv Theater. January 12th at 6.30, and I hope a lot of people come. Great, thank you. Now, if you'll all bear with me for just a second, let's hop in the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin time machine and set the dial for January 28th, 2012. That was the day we first heard episode 29, which featured Andrew Smith, one of the top commenters on Reddit. Welcome back to the show, Andrew, and what was the best thing of 2012? Easily football. Now, football... This is not the kind of show where a lot of the guests over the course of the year are going to pick football, I got to tell you. So I don't know exactly what made football so great in 2012. What was it? Um, it was just a lot of chaos, and anything that breeds chaos is all right with me. We had the, the refs holding out, so we had the replacement refs, and like four or five games were easily ruined by the replacement refs, and there's nothing we could really do about it. And then we have really great rookies this year with Robert Griffin III. We have Andrew Luck. We also have the the guy, Russell Williams, Russell Wilson from the the Seahawks doing excellent. And then we have great defensive players. And we also had Drew Brees break Johnny Unitas' uh, touchdown record. It's just been a really crazy football year. Even though my team is is basically out of the running, it's every, every game is still a, a great thing. And plus, LSU lost in college, and a, a freshman won the Heisman Trophy this year. It's just been pretty wild. So even with games being ruined by refs not being there, you don't mind that the game's ruined. You just like that things are interesting. There's a little bit of chaos in there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, um, football is America's sport. It's 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 perfect. It's it's 30 minutes of – I mean, it's – it's like 20 seconds of action followed by 45 seconds of eating, drinking, and, and talking to your friends. And it's just, I I don't watch football. Well, I watch football for the sport itself, but I also watch football because it's it's something to do. It's entertainment. It's And with the refs fucking everything up, it's even more entertainment. Do you see football evolving year to year? Like 2012 was different from 2011, and 2013, you'll expect, uh, will be different from this year. Well, yeah, I think it, it, it changes each year, but 
I mean, it, in general, it's the same. I mean, football is always football, but teams might move soon. I mean, Jacksonville Jags are probably going to go to L.A. in a couple of years. London might get a team soon. That We play more games in, in London now. We play two this year, and maybe uh, Canada will get a team eventually. It's just it's it's strange to see how much it can change in such a short amount of time and it's it's just really really entertaining to me real quick we used up most of our time talking about football but i want to know your opinion subreddit of the year 2012 the section of reddit that you thought uh, was the most exciting this year probably i enjoy wicked edge which is the straight raising rate shave subreddit but i mean i can't these are people talking about shaving with a straight edge and tips and tricks and pictures i guess it's it's my favorite community but probably the what should actually get it ama ima because they had obama they had snoop dogg recently who did a really good one yeah obama and snoop dogg those are pretty much the two people you know dimitri martin did one the other day we've had a lot they've had a lot of good celebrities come talk yeah, you say they, but then you quickly corrected yourself and you said we, because you are one of the moderators, correct? Not for I got removed. Oh, I see. Sorry about that. Uh, it's, it's a lot of drama. It's actually really funny. We will have to catch up on that next year. Thank you for talking to me about football and Reddit, two things you are definitely more familiar with than I am. Oh, anytime. Moving on, our next guest triple dipped on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show this year. He was in episode 33, Toy Fair. He was in episode 37, talking about the Ninja Turtles. And who can forget episode 48, talking about E3. Here is Owen Parsons from College Humor. Owen, what was the best thing of 2012? For me, the best thing of 2012 was a cartoon that premiered on the Disney Channel uh, called Gravity Falls. And this was a cartoon created by Alex Hirsch, who was a writer for The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack previously. And this is... You already lost me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is an, it's a really great uh, new cartoon that uh, some friends of mine in the office turned me on to. And it's basically kind of like a... If someone took The Simpsons, uh, X-Files, Twin Peaks, and Adventure Time and kind of mixed them all up in a blender and then poured out a nice like half-hour cartoon on the Disney Channel. So what is the premise of the show? The premise of the show is that it follows uh, two 12-year-old kids, uh, Dipper and Mabel Pines, who I'm back on board. <laughs> who, who go and uh, visit for the summer? They go and they visit their great uncle Stan, uh, who runs like a tourist trap style mystery shack, which is in this small town in Oregon, in this uh, Pacific Northwest woodsy setting. And the idea is that they go to this town, and as we see them through more episodes, we discover that there are weird, strange things going on in the town, and they they run the gamut from like strange mysteries going on with the individual characters to outright monsters in the woods that. The show does a really good job of going back and forth between very outlandish paranormal things and very grounded uh, character-based stories. And what's the comedy like? Why is it funny? Or it, is it funny? Yeah, it's it's very funny. The uh, The thing I like most about it is that whereas I'm a big Adventure Time fan, and this show, that show gets its comedy from like all the, the fantastical settings and things. This one, it's much more character-based. It's much more focused in one specific town. It kind of builds out a cast of characters like a Springfield almost. So in, I think there have only been 10 or 11 episodes of it so far, but it already has kind of this vibrant cast of characters and you you look to them and they have great one-liners. They have very funny stories. Mabel Pines, who is the sister of the main character, is an instant instant classic character. She's voiced by uh, Kristen Schaal, 
who also does uh, Louise Belcher on Bob's Burgers. Um, She's just Kristen Shaw. I didn't even think yeah. we had to explain who she was. Really? Oh uh, no, no, yeah, but she does. She does. She she gives this great like useful. She's on the Concord now. Now I want to explain it more. Oh yeah, Kristen Shaw is on Concord's uh, Daily Show, Toy yeah. Story Three. She's everywhere. Yeah. Um, but she gives this really great performance as like this twelve-year-old kid that's kind of just full of wonder, and yeah, it has it has just this really fun, quirky, strange sense of humor. Is there an overarching plot that goes over the series? That's one of the things I really like about it is they will reference previous episodes, so it's sort of semi-serialized. Like in one episode, um. The, the S on the Mystery Shack sign falls off, and all subsequent episodes so far, that S has been gone, has, has it fallen off. That's interesting, because that's something that's, you know, uh, you've seen more and more adult shows, adult shows, which sounds like <laughs> porn, I just mean not shows on the Disney Channel, yeah. uh, get increasingly serialized uh, over the years. I don't think that's a secret. Already on this episode, someone else brought up The Legend of Korra, which, like uh, Avatar, which begot Legend of Korra, was, is a serialized show, and it's interesting to see that creeping into kids' cartoons. You already mentioned Adventure Time, and Adventure Time has elements that reward, you know, watching the whole yeah, show. Yeah, repeat and, like, viewers. Uh, backstory that isn't necessarily uh, in the foreground. Yeah. And it's cool to see those things that are uh, working for adults working in kids' cartoons, too. Yeah, it's great because it's not, like I said, it's a show that merges a lot of different things together to create kind of this weird universe. And it's not fully serialized. Like, Legend of Korra is very much... Uh, the adventure like builds over episode after episode. Uh, this one, the episodes kind of stand alone, but there's just little little treats, little uh, little jokes and references in there for people who've seen the previous episodes. Like there's one character who uh, is on a phone call, has a very bit part in a later episode, but when he's uh, int- reintroduced back into the series, the main character has to apologize for accusing him of murder in an episode. Uh, Two two half hours back. Did that exist in? Maybe I'm making this up. That this is a new, a little bit 2012 thing. But did that exist when we were kids? I feel like you could watch any episode of Ninja Turtles in any order, and it pretty much makes sense. Yeah, most of them are kind of one-offs. Even uh, Dexter's Laboratory, um, Samurai Jack. These these which made sense before DVR, before yeah. DVD, before streaming, before you could sit down and kind of just watch all of all of the episodes of one series at a pitch. Like, I mean, that's what I'm doing now with uh, Gravity Falls. I'm not even finished with the first season yet, but I already love it. Um, How much of it is there? God, I, I don't know off the top of my head. That's okay. Um, it's like... There's more than one season? There's just one. Oh. It, it just premiered this year. Oh, I see. Um, and I'm actually, I don't, they haven't announced when the, when the next episode's coming out, so I'm hoping it comes out soon. Isn't there something else that's very good right now on Disney Channel? I've, I've heard, I've heard a claim of, but have not seen Phineas and Ferb, mm, which yeah. is supposed to be a very good cartoon. Uh, a lot of my, a lot of how impressed I was with this, with this show, Gravity Falls, is in that it's on the Disney Channel, and you're seeing more of these networks take a approach to cartoons that's less child-focused and more embracing all ages. Which is what Adventure Time kind of does, is that yeah. it's entertaining for a child, but there's also it also rewards a viewing as, you know, a shiftless 20-something <laughs> adult who watches cartoons. And that existed when we were kids. I think uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse was something that I watched as a kid that yeah. adults enjoyed, Ren and Stimpy. Mm-hmm. So that's a long-standing tradition, and it's exciting to see it continued, uh, even now that we're on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Another, and the the... The best thing I can recommend for anyone who is on the fence about watching the show is just to go on YouTube and watch the opening credits because it has an incredibly well-designed, well-animated uh, opening credit sequence which kind of captures the whole uh, X-Files, eerie Indiana-type weirdness of the show and also the Pacific Northwest setting, which is, is very vibrant and very fun. And it's got a, a kick-ass theme song. That sounds great. I'm going to have to check that out. 
Great. Moving on, my next guest comes to us all the way from episode 38 when we discussed Mass Effect 3. It was before the Mass Effect 3 ending was fixed. Now we are back to talk about something else. Please welcome to tell us what the best thing of 2012 was, Mike Drucker. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Good. So what do you got? There's a video game called FTL, just the the letters FTL, and it stands for Faster Than Light. I know what FTL stands for. I watched all of <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> it's 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 my favorite video game of the year. It's like imagine if like it was like if you mixed Solitaire with like Firefly and Battlestar Galactica. It's this randomized <laughs> game. Random game where you run a spaceship and it cuts out all the boring stuff. It's just like you're constantly fighting aliens, you're getting new crew members and you're like beaming aboard other ships and stealing like stealing like like the uh, parts of other ships and building new parts it, it's awesome interesting and what is it for it's for uh mac and pc it's only like 10 bucks it's it's random every time you play it's so fun it's so unbelievably fun what makes it so fun um one i think it's the fact that you just jump in to play it like it's not like you know i mean you and i play a lot of video games like most video games take like two hours to get going and, you know, you got to learn a lot about the story. These games, t- you can beat it in an hour, but then you play it again and it's random next time. And it just gets going. The moment you start playing, you're, like, exploring things, you're fighting things, you're figuring things out. And, like, everyone has their own terror stories about, like, times they almost won, but then they, you know, then they hyper-jumped too close to a sun. And then their ship exploded, like, an hour into the game and they lost everything. And what is it like when I'm actually playing the game? What do I actually do? Am I a person running around the ship? Am I doing math on spreadsheets? No, well, it's closer to math on spreadsheets, but it's not <laughs> that bad. Uh, you're, like, looking at an overview of the ship, and you're, like, running people around the ship. Like, like, you know, if you get hit in the engine, the engine might be on fire. So you're, like, so you throw someone over there. And then, like, if you throw someone in the weapons bay, they'll shoot weapons a little faster. It's almost like if you saw an overshi- overview of the ship in Star Trek. You could see everyone running around to, like, put out a fire and then close a door and then to fight, like, an alien who just beamed aboard. And you have all these crew members that are just dashing about the ship. And those, who are, those are who you control. Something you said reminded me of another conversation we already had on this episode about the video game XCOM. And now XCOM uh, is the kind of game that generates little interesting narratives that are unique to your playthrough. Kind of like right. uh, Grand Theft Auto did. Or uh, what's another good example? Skyrim would be a good example. Even like when you're playing a game StarCraft Online. Like, the way the battle plays out with somebody is not going to be the same every time. There's, like, enough rules, and it's not that there's a lot of rules, but there's enough rules that, uh, and they're moving around in somewhat random, somewhat unpredictable ways, that something emerges from it, and something unpredictable emerges. Emerges is the word, I think. Exactly. I think, like, it's even called, like, emergent gameplay. It's just, like, the idea of, like, as you're playing, you're building your own story. And there's, like, minor elements, like, and sometimes, like, let's say you'll go to, like, you'll discover an abandoned ship, and the game will be like, do you want to send your crew in? And sometimes you'll send your crew in and you'll find something awesome, but sometimes like, it'll give you a little story snippet where one of your crew members died. And everything's so random, and every choice can either completely ruin your game or completely just build up your ship and keep you going. And the cool thing about it is you can quit and save your game, but once your ship is destroyed, everybody dies and you have to start from the beginning. There's no save. You can't reload. It's once you're dead, you're dead. You have to start over. It sounds like a roguelike game, you might it say. It is a roguelike game. Roguelike games, I believe we discussed in the Video Game Debate Club episode, um, particularly with reference to Spelunky, which was another roguelike game that I really enjoyed that came out in 2012. And yeah. I think one core... So Rogue's an old game 
And there's a lot of games that, uh, you know, really borrow from it uh, a lot, so much that it's its own subgenre, roguelike games. And one, one of the core principles is that idea of permadeath, where you have, what, you have to beat it all in one run-through, and, uh, you know, that's the person's life. And the randomly yeah. generated things are abound that can immediately kill you and immediately start you over. And that's true of Rogue, and it's true of uh, Spelunky, and it sounds like it's true of FTL. It's absolutely true of FTL, but that's what makes it fun. I mean, when I tell people that, they're like, oh, no, but you lose all your progress. But the thing is, that's what makes it great, is as you're about to die, it's not like, oh, all right, I'll just reload and do this mission again. You're like, oh, like, shit, I need to, I need to fix this now or I'm done. And when your ship explodes, there's this sort of, like, sense of resignation that, again, you don't get with a reloadable game where you're like, oh, well, we had a good run. That was what was so great about Spelunky 2, another one of those narrative games where you can kind of, you get little stories that come out of you can't believe the way you died. Uh, But because the game randomly generates levels, you can't learn the game. You can't learn the levels. You have to learn how to play the game, and your focus is on actually execution. And that's not true of all games. You know, Assassin's Creed 3 or Halo 4, not to pick on those two. I think they're both good games, but, um, you know, you can reload over and over, and you do the same thing over and over until you get it right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's not like there's no walkthrough for Spelunky or for FTL. Like, again, you're right. You can find strategies. You can be like, when you run into this situation, your best move is to do this. But sometimes you're going to run into a situation where, again, you you beam near a sun and then you have a ship that's much more powerful than you. And do you spend your time trying to race your engine so you can hyper jump out of there? Or do you fight the ship and take your chances with the sun? It's all these decisions, and, and again, like it's a game that you can beat in an hour. So it's like you can play it on your lunch break while you're bored at work. It works on Mac PCs and normal, or Macs and PCs. So it's like it's all that excitement, but it's packaged into something that like you can do during a lunch break. Man, I heard a lot about this game over the year. I didn't have a chance to play it, and since we've been talking, I've been fighting off the urge to like open up Steam while we're talking and buy it right now. <laughs> it's really, really good. The soundtrack's also awesome. Like the soundtrack's available for five bucks. And it's a very moody, atmospheric soundtrack. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. It sounds awesome. Mike, thanks so much for weighing in. Thank you for having me. Moving on, up next is a man who was on episode 58. We talked about Breaking Bad Season 5. He is from Entertainment Weekly and the Entertainment Geekly podcast. Darren Franich, what is your favorite thing of 2012? Favorite thing by far, Jeff, is Journey, the video game by that game company. It was released, uh, it's sort of like one of the, one of the independent releases. Uh, it was on the PS3 this year. Uh, so good. Blew my mind off. Like, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of shorter games, but it just has this really sort of fantastic look to it. It's, it's biblical. You're, you know, you're, you're going to a mountaintop. It feels like every video game and no other video game all at once. I loved it. I laughed and I cried. So this is a PlayStation 3 downloadable game. And one thing that's been great about the explosion of those indie games, those downloadable games, is the idea of these games that are good for just a few hours. They don't have to sustain a concept for 10 hours, 20 hours, plus infinity in multiplayer. This is a game, you know, it's a great idea, but it only lasts for a few hours. And that's okay because it's, it's a smaller downloadable game. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you really feel like, uh, you know, for me, it's this weird thing where more and more now, you know, I buy one of those games that is designed to last for 70 hours. And really, like, maybe I'm just getting older. Around, like, hour 40, I kind of start feeling like I'm wasting my life a little bit. There is something very appealing about, yeah, a game like this costs, like, $15. You know, experience is maybe roughly akin to a movie, you know, two or three hours. But at the same time, it packs a lot into that experience. I, I think that's, I mean, again, just as I'm getting older, I, I kind of prefer that kind of game experience to something like Grand Theft Auto, which could take me 90 hours to play. All right. So what 
is Journey? What am I doing when I'm playing the game? So you take on the role of this figure who's sort of walking through the desert when you first meet him or her. It, it, it's this very sort of like almost abstract art style. Your figure that you control doesn't even really have arms. Along the way, you sort of develop these powers. They all seem to kind of be attached to scarves. You can sort of fly. But the big twist with Journey is you're sort of going towards this mountaintop. You see it, you see it at, at, at the very beginning. That's kind of the ultimate goal. Along the way, though, you randomly meet up with other people who look exactly like you. And, of course, the big cool twist with this is that, that if you're connected to the game via the Internet, that's actually other players. But, you know, you can only really communicate with them, you know, via you, – you can't, honestly. You're sort of trying to learn who they are and what they're doing just, you know, in, in this sort of nice little space the game creates. But surely it's, there's a button or just something, some way for me to call them gay. There is. And, and in fact, like what it is is, like, um, you know, along with, like, I think there's maybe, like, three buttons in the game. One of them is jump. One of them is you're moving. The last one is you can, like, sing a little song. And, like, literally, you know, you'll hit the button and, you know, your, your guy will hum. And if you hit it a few more times, there's a different hum. So it's kind of like you're communicating with with this other person in the weirdest and most poetic form of, Mo of Morse code ever. But I so. think that was a very deliberate decision, I think we should explain, that yes. uh, to not let people communicate except as the character in the game and to not so you have to pr kind of problem solve in these abstract ways I think that's really the core of this game it, it is absolutely and uh, you know I, I think it's interesting because you know like uh, so many games nowadays are kind of geared towards this, this online attachment but my, my usual experience with that has been playing Call of Duty and having 12 year olds from Russia call me names so like by comparison this you know you're really trying to like learn what the other person is all about it's, it's this very kind of soulful experience I thought I, I, I was very moved by by it really and what makes it the best thing of 2012 you know i i just think that you know there were a lot of like great great things this year you know both in both in pop culture and just and just generally and in my life and hopefully in your life also but what i liked about this is that it really felt like it was just pushing video games into this whole new space in a way you know like i feel like right now we're kind of right at the end of one generation of video games very unclear what's happening next this to me is just like video games kind of sticking their kind of like flag in the future i mean like you know if this is sort of the kind of experience that you know we'll see more and more of i'm totally on board it's very ambitious and not in the way that call of duty black ops 2 is ambitious not to keep picking on that game where they just oh, spent God, a billion I hate that game honestly it, uh, please it, please feel free to keep picking on it <laughs> but i think sometimes ambition can be confused for oh there's great graphics or there's a hundred multiplayer modes you can't get through them all but this is ambition in they're doing something that has really never been done before and trying something genuinely new I think that you're exactly right. I, I think video games especially, there's, there's this sense more and more that a lot of them now, they're ambitious only in the sense of, yeah, like, yeah, how, how big can we get? And, I mean, this is a game that is artsy as all hell. And, like, you know, when you, when, when you read about it, like, the creators certainly talk about it the way that, like, art students do, which I know can be sort of a turnoff for some people. But I, I do think you're exactly right, that they're really trying to kind of push games forward in a really interesting way. And, I mean, not to be overlooked, it is also graphically a beautiful game, you know? I mean, like, it's, it's you know, there have been a lot of cool games like Limbo that I think derive a lot of their power from being so stripped down. Journey is beautiful. I mean, like, the sand, like, all of that stuff. So it, I, I think it, it, it does a little bit of everything and does it very well. It's 
interesting also that you are the second person to choose an indie game. The other one was Mike Drucker, who picked FTL as uh, their thing of 2012. It's exciting to see that movement growing. It, it is, right? I mean, you know, it's, it sort of feels like a, a few years ago, you know, something like Braid seemed like such an outlier. And it just seems like now each year there's more and more games like that. I mean, I, I think that especially among, you know, maybe some gamers who have gotten a little bit tired of the, the Call of Duty, you know, endless relentlessness of franchises like that. I think that there's a real kind of like uh, market out there for games like this now. And, and again, I, I think as you pointed out, there's something very appealing about like a nice you know, three-hour experience that isn't going to necessarily eat up all your free time for a month. Yeah, I think you are correct. And it's exciting also because I feel like movies have kind of stagnated. By and large, obviously, there's going to be innovative movies all the time forever. But, uh, you know, you pretty much know what a movie is. And especially a movie you go see in theater is like how it works and how it operates. And games are really just trying to figure that out. They're still so new, so young, and it's exciting to see uh, people trying new things with them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. It definitely just feels like certainly mainstream movies in America have kind of stagnated a little bit. And, and honestly, it feels sometimes as if a lot of the mainstream game franchises have also kind of stagnated. I mean, you know, classically speaking, video games have always been been based on franchises, and there's nothing wrong with that. And many of the best games ever made come from, like, the hugest franchises ever. And it feels like now we're kind of seeing this kind of explosion of kind of cool games along the margin. And I, th I think Journey is definitely leading that charge. I mean, yeah, it was just such an incredible experience. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us and letting us know, Darren. Thanks, man. Moving on, next up is a man, a doctor, who was my guest on the most popular episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show of 2012. Here is Dr. Will Brooker, a man who wrote his PhD thesis on Batman. We discussed The Dark Knight Rises in episode 54. Dr. Batman, what was your favorite thing of uh, 2012? My favorite thing of 2012, Jeff, you may be surprised to hear it's a Batman thing, um, but it's not actually Dark Knight Rises. I'm going to pick as my best thing of 2012 Scott Snyder and Co.'s Batman Death of the Family running in the Batman comic book. It starts in issue 13 and it goes on to, I think so far, 14 and 15. I've so far read two episodes of it. and I really think this is one of the most exciting things to happen to Batman in some time, probably since the Dark Knight, since Nolan's Dark Knight movie. And after only two or three issues, that's not a whole lot of story, really. No, um, but uh, Snyder's built up to this with his um, Court of Owls story arc, so he's uh, he's established an awful lot of, of backstory there, and he's now kind of just ramping it up. Also, one of the things about this storyline is um, there's there's tons and tons of history here, because it's all about Batman and Joker, so it dates back to 1940, and it's Joker revisiting some of his earliest crimes and encounters with Batman, so it engages with history, so all that, their, their long past is overshadowing them. So it's referring back to every adventure they've ever had before. What is the general thrust of this story? General thrust of this story is Joker's been um, hanging back out of the limelight for a while. And um, it's a very, very interesting engagement with the idea of Batman. My sense of it is, after two episodes, that Joker thinks that Batman has become soft because of Batman Incorporated, the Batman family, all of allies and so on, you know, Red Robin, Robin, Batgirl and Batman incorporated the ring around the world and he wants to bring him back to the Batman he first met, the Batman with a hyphen between it, the Batman of 1939 and 1940, who he calls his king. So he wants, he thinks Batman's gone soft and he thinks he's doing Batman a favor by killing off all the surrounding members of the Batman family to make Batman into what he used to be, the tough guy, 
the the sole the, the lone vigilante the solo vigilante is a very very interesting idea it's like joker wants to rewrite history and take it back to origins and it's called a death in the family which is in and of itself a reference to the famous i guess 80s storyline where uh, jason todd was killed yeah it's a reference to death death in the family this mm-hmm. is death of the family so rather than one person dying we're looking at potentially everyone apart from batman i think it's it, it's shocking stuff have there been any high-profile deaths so far? Um, n- no, not yet. We're only on episode two. Alfred Pennyworth is, um, is he's had his uh, eyes sealed with ammonia and beaten with a hammer. So, you know, pretty good start. Um, Harley, Joker is split up from Harley Quinn, and um, Harley's saying, you know, Mr. J has gone, the old Mr. J I knew has gone. Pretty much everyone's under threat. I've not read a comic in a long time which has given me the same sort of sense of, of dread and suspense that Joker is actually a really, really dangerous force. I think uh, what Snyder's done here is make him the kind of figure that he was um, when he was played by Heath Ledger in Nolan's Dark Knight. This this force of energy, you just can't predict what he's going to do next, and that's really terrifying. And what is it that makes this the best thing of 2012, even better than Dark Knight Rises? What I like about Snyder's Batman is I think it combines the best bits of Morrison's Batman that came before in the comics, and, and Nolan's Batman in the cinema. I really did like Nolan's Batman, and it's a kind of realistic, um, plausible, based in Chicago sort of. It's a it's a believable world, but it's the Nolan verse, so it's separate from Batman continuity. And I very much enjoyed Morrison's as well. But there's a sense of stylization and sort of textuality about it that what Morrison is doing is kind of playing with stories and playing with history, and it never quite seemed to matter in the same way as Nolan's. So Nolan's draws you into this suspenseful universe, but it's a separate universe from the rest of the Batman world. Um, And Morrison engaged with the Batman world, but it seemed to be on a level of quite a playful level. So I think what Snyder's doing is, is combining the two. It feels like a real world, very much grounded in logic and science and rationality and detection, but also it's playing on an encyclopedic knowledge of all of Batman's history, of Joker's history. Well, that's perfect for you. So it's not a separate... Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, the more you know about Batman's history, the more you will enjoy this, because you'll recognize all the kind of references to the first appearances of Joker. And the, the great thing is, it's like Joker is a kind of historian. Joker knows what happened before, and he's replaying it, and he's doing it slightly differently this time. Excellent selection. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and telling us about it. Thank you very much. We are... Finally there. Our long journey is almost at an end. We are here with the only person who could be the final guest on this epic journey. Wow, thank you. He has been on more Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows than anyone else is here. Six, this will be his seventh Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show appearance of the year. Episode number 26, movie 2012 preview. Episode 37, Hunger Games. Well, it was a bunch of stuff, but you talked about the Hunger Games. Episode 44, Pop Culture Conspiracy Theories. Episode 50, The Great American DVD Swap. Episode 58, Breaking Bad Season 5. Episode 62, Looper, where we were both a little drunk. Pat Castles, welcome back. What was the best thing of 2012? Uh, My selection is Red... Uh, the new album, the Thriller from... with Bruce Willis and Helen no, Mirren. no, no, different, different red, different red. Um, read the Taylor Swift album from 2012 that was released uh, about um, two months ago. And why is that the best thing of 2012? I became a Taylor Swift fan on her last album, Fearless. Which how many um, does she have now? It's actually not Fearless. I'm going to be totally speak now is her last album. Okay, my mistake. I totally fine. Um. I'm sorry, how many albums does she have? Yeah, like where is... Four. 
Wow, really? Yeah. She's pretty prolific. She is. She started when she was, her first album was when she was 16 years old. And is it the first album, the one with uh, the song I know? Uh, uh, you, um, you, you Belong to Me. No, that is Fearless. That's That That was the breakout one. Okay, okay. But her first album's really good, too. Okay. Um, so what, what, Red, best yes, album, best yes. thing of 2012. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, well, you know, I kind of, it was a big deal. Uh, not just for me, for like uh, you know, it was as far as albums go. Uh, it really was, you know. I read one review that was like, "She's selling albums like it's the nine. She's selling albums like it's the nineties or something like that," mm-hmm. which I thought was very telling. Um, yeah, there's very few like mega stars left who can sell, you know, yeah. sell a bunch of albums. But you know, that's obviously I, I needed to like it personally in order to to, to choose it. Um, but best thing, I mean, yeah, it's de- I kind I think I was thinking about what I wanted to pick, and I like you know, there's a lot of movies that came out. I liked, I read a lot of books that I liked, but I think this is the only like thing that I was anticipating coming out. Like even shows that I liked. With the exception of maybe Breaking Bad, like you know, they just they or movies, you know, they would just arrive in theaters and be like, oh, I that's what I wanted to see. This one was very much I was aware of the day it came out. Um, I was it was probably the thing I was anticipating the most in a lot of ways. Um, and then I heard it, and I was I was very skeptical uh, because I didn't actually like the first single. I did not like We Are Never Getting Back Together because mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of a weird song. It kind of has a weird like rhythm to it. It's a little preachy. Mm-hmm. Um, a little sassy, I think, maybe is a word. But that's Taylor. That's Taylor. Not always, though. She's, I always think she's a little more genuine in her lyrics. I don't uh, really know that much about Taylor Swift. Well, I, don't, that's, I, should, I want to preface this by saying I am not a, you know, I love movies, I love TV shows. I'm not a music critic. It's probably one of the, uh, genre, one of the mediums I know the least about. And it's difficult uh, to talk about. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult absolutely. to articulate exactly, isolate what's good and yeah. what's not, what, what appeals to you about totally. the song. Totally, and I, I praise her, you know, being aware that there's probably a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of other musicians who are extremely talented who I haven't been exposed to, but I just sort of I, I I think I read an article about her in a magazine like two years ago or something, and I found it. I think what what I found fascinating about her originally was that kind of two things. One, she's like I know nothing about what she's like in real life. She's kind of terrifying and mysterious in a weird way. Like she's either I think I was talking to a friend about this. She's either like the nicest person in the world or, like, the meanest person in the world in real life. You know what I mean? Well, she got famous when she was very young, which Mm -hmm. I think can be, you know, really bring out something in a person. And I think she was extremely driven. Like, she grew up in Pennsylvania and then went... When she found out, you know, she kind of gravitated toward in she gravitated toward country music, and then when she kind of realized like that Nashville was like where country music like happened, she kind of like I mean I think I don't know maybe it was a mutual thing, but you kind of get the impression from everything I've read that like she sort of made her parents move to Nashville, so because that's like you know where she wanted to be, which is obviously you know you could interpret as her being spoiled, but there's also something kind of cool about it that her being like that extremely driven or creepy about it. I don't know. There's a lot of you know, she's a multifaceted individual. It's but, okay because it worked. Yeah, absolutely. To talk about the music, though, the cool thing about her is that she started as a country musician and then transferred that into pop music, which into like like real like pop diva style music, which no one had really done before. Like at least not since like like the Britney Spears era began. You know, not, not to really compare it to Britney Spears. Because there's no contest there, <laughs> She's, like, on another level. And the combination of that, I think, makes for, like, really catchy songs that with really good lyrics, and it's a good album. Now, you, as popular as she is, you are probably not the typical Taylor Swift fan. Is that true? Um, You know, I think we're all 
the typical Taylor Swift. She's so Swift popular fan. that like she you mean has... do I do I have a soul? Because <laughs> well, that's she, the typical Taylor Swift fan. She's so popular that she does have fans of all types. But I think when most people picture a Taylor Swift concert, they probably don't picture you there. Absolutely, what, yeah. no, you're right. Is it about her music that yeah. appeals to you? And and you're right. I, I and I'm not like you know. I am not. I don't have like posters of, of of One Direction or like you know other pop teen oriented things covering my walls. Uh, but so this is not. This is you know specific. It's very specific. Um, what draws me to her? I mean, to go back to her, just it's mostly her lyrics. I think are very good. She has. They're very catchy songs. But I think that I think that a lot of times stuff targeted toward teenagers, and this I think applies to TV shows and movies as well winds up being the most universal for anyone because I think um, you are sort of, um, those emotions are like the base emotions. It's almost like, there's almost something like Joseph Campbelly about it. Where yeah. it's just like, you know, I think like what you go through for those years, like in large part defines you for the rest of your life. Or mm-hmm. certainly you carry it with you. Everyone carries that with you for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to define you, but yeah, that's uh, a big piece of who you are. Yeah, and also I, I just think your emotions are so sort of, bear at that point that they're kind of like it's it's you you never lose those emotions you just kind of get more mature and you kind of be start caring about them a little bit less or whatever you just get busier um so in that sense i think they're pretty relatable to anyone of any age i don't think your lyrics are all amazing like a lot of them are kind of like clunky but they're kind of clunky in the way that like a teenage girl's diary is clunky that's that sounds creepy i realize <laughs> um i was very aware I, I was nervous about picking this artist but um but in the sense that like they're a lot of, there's a lot of very clever lines like there's um even the whole even like from you belong with me even the whole like you know she wears short skirts i wear t-shirts kind of thing like that's you know not the best example but like it's definitely it's it's i like how specific it is because so many pop stars speak in abstractions like if we listen to a Britney Spears song or like a pink song i feel like a lot of their lyrics are kind of just sort of like you know we're going to party and like you know i'm a shining star and the kind of they're sort of broad and sort of abstract her lyrics are very specific you know and that she kind of gets a lot of notoriety for that for like very with in terms of her this you know the boyfriend she writes about if she's writing about you know Jake Gyllenhaal or something like that you know um but I think that's kind of cool, you know, that she's sort of being very direct, and there are her songs are very quotable. I think, in a and not just in like a chanting anthem kind of way. Do you think? And I don't know. I really just no. Don't. It's yeah. But as she's gotten more famous, has have her songs remained relatable? Because you know that first album she's singing about these experiences that so many of us have, but. You know, now I Taylor Swift and I live very different lives. Right. I'm dating Zane from One Direction, for instance. <laughs> She's dating Harry. Um, I think that. I think the lyrics. I think there is. She. It, there definitely is a limit. She's so aggressively axed, like she's not changing, that you kind of just have to throw up your hands and be like, you know, if if you want to accuse her of being phony. She never, there's no chink in her armor. So if you want to accuse her of being phony, she'd be like, well, you know, I'm just trying to be honest. Like, if you want to be a dick and say I'm lying, that's up to you. Um, but I don't know. I think I think that, um, they're, I mean, they're all about relationships. There's so many, so many of them about relationships that, like, um, that is probably, prob- the details change. I mean, she's just, like, you know, she gets in a fight with her boyfriend. She's just doing it, like, on, like, the roof of the standard hotel as opposed to, like, a dive bar, you know? Do you think, like, famous people relationships are, like, they have the same quirks and foibles as ours? Not even Taylor Swift, just generally? I guess they would, right? I don't know. I have, I have no idea. I don't know either. I don't know how... You know, I, I don't... God. 
I, I barely know how regular relationships work, <laughs> let alone celebrity relationship works. Um, but I, I think I think she, she's also very nostalgic. I think a lot of her songs reference like very nostalgic detail. There's a lot of you listen to All Too Well, which I think is kind of considered the best album, the best track on the album, and tellingly is written with her co-writer from um, from Fearless, which is like the big breakout album, and. It's the only one co-written with her, and I think it's the best song on the album. So it's like kind of a nice throwback. It's very nostalgic. There's a lot of references to like her a relationship that seems very old. Well, but though it's supposed to, that that one's about Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know. That's the other thing about her. She's kind of like it's sort of like there's almost like she's kind of like lost the TV show in that like there's a lot of people like deconstructing her the lyrics in her songs. You know? Yeah, that's the perfect Pat Castles comparison that Taylor Swift yeah. has like lost the TV show. Someone's gonna go crazy and, and shoot someone by dissecting her lyrics. And guess who it's gonna be? <laughs> the person talking about her at eight o'clock well, on a Tuesday. Pat, that was a great selection. Thank, Thank you, you yes. so much for doing this. Uh, let's do seven or eight more episodes in 2013. Yeah, absolutely. And also, should we tell people that we're going to be doing Bleep Loop in January? You just did. I think we just did. I'm excited about it. That'll be fun. Totally. So you'll, get, you'll get even more of Jeff. More of this. So obviously we're refocusing Bleep Loop, so it's all about Taylor Swift, but uh-huh. yeah. uh, it should be, you know, same Bleep Loop everyone loved, just more fearless. She should do a... Oh, man, that's great. <laughs> I, can't, I don't want to say anything else. That's the perfect ending. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Matt. All right. That's it. We're out of people. You made it to the end. And if you got this far, uh, you might as well 100% things and listen to the very bitter end of the episode and hear me say thank you to all of my guests over the course of the year. Uh, Getting to talk to you guys was the best thing for 2012 for me, and I'm so excited to do more of it in 2013. Uh, Also, thank you to the listeners who always send me good notes, good suggestions for episodes. I love talking to you guys. And uh, without you, the fact that I have a podcast would be way, way sadder. I feel so lucky to not only get to talk to the people that I talk to, but also have an audience that seems to appreciate it. And I can't wait for more of it in 2013. Doing this podcast is an absolute privilege. With that in mind, I am taking the next two weeks off. As you know, the show usually comes out on Tuesdays. Next Tuesday is Christmas. The Tuesday after that is New Year's. And I was just like, fuck that. See you in 2013. Uh, in this space last week, I hyped uh, an episode with Freestyle Love Supreme. I played a little preview of that. And I'm sorry that it didn't come out this week, but it is recorded and it will be the first episode of 2013. If you were really looking forward to it, get in touch with me, email me, tweet me, whatever. And I will get you an advanced copy of that episode, because I'm sorry I teased it a little early. But it's a great one. First episode of 2013, and that means they have all year to start planning what they think the best thing of 2013 is for next year's end-of-the-year Jeff-tacular. So, how do you get in touch with me? How do you request that episode? One, you can email me, jeffrubin at jeffrubinshow.com. So the whole thing spells out jeffrubin, jeffrubinshow.com. There is Twitter, where if you tweet me, I swear to God, I swear to fucking God, I will tweet you back. Uh, Tumblr, or at least I'll throw a favorite on it. Tumblr, uh, jeffrubin, jeffrubin.com. I guess you can ask me things via Tumblr. That's not a great way to communicate, though that is pretty much my primary, uh, I do view that as my main mouthpiece. So you want to make sure you're following me. You want to be following my main mouthpiece, right? Uh, Tumblr, jeffrubin, jeffrubin.com. 
Facebook slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. Ask a question, post a comment. I'll get back to you. And YouTube.com slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. Uh, YouTube's not a great way to communicate either, honestly, because it's completely full of spam. I definitely, you know, like the first few weeks I was putting the show up there, had this moment where I was like, ooh, a new message. You love my content and want to help me promote it. Uh, And then I noticed there was like 25 of those. So YouTube, not a great way to reach me, though. A great way to listen to the show without having to figure out how podcasts work. That is it for the 2012 Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin, end of the year Jeff Tacular. Thank you so much for listening, not only in this episode, uh, but to the show all year. I will see you in 2013. Bye for now.